What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 23 of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter 23. I corroborate Mr. Dick and choose a profession. When I awoke in the morning I thought very much of little Emily and her emotion last night after Martha had left. I felt as if I had come into the knowledge of those domestic weaknesses and tendernesses in a sacred confidence, and that to disclose them, even to steer forth, would be wrong. I have no gentler feeling towards any one than towards the pretty creature who had been my playmate, and whom I have always been persuaded, and shall always be persuaded, to my dying day, I then devotedly loved the repetition to any ears even to steerforth's of what she had been unable to repress when her heart lay open to me by an accident i felt would be a rough deed unworthy of myself unworthy of the light of our pure childhood which i always saw encircling her head i made a resolution therefore to keep it in my own breast and there it gave her image a new grace while we were at breakfast a letter was delivered to me from my aunt as it contained matter on which I thought Steerforth could advise me as well as any one, and on which I knew I should be delighted to consult him, I resolved to make it a subject of discussion on our journey home. For the present we had enough to do in taking leave of all our friends. Mr. Barkers was far from being the last among them in his regret at our departure, and I believe would even have opened the box again and sacrificed another guinea if it would have kept us eight and forty hours in Yarmouth. Peggotty and all her family were full of grief at our going. The whole house of Omer and Yoram turned out to bid us good-bye, and there were so many seafaring volunteers in attendance on Steerforth when our portmanteau went to the coach, that if we had had the baggage of a regiment with us, we should hardly have wanted porters to carry it. In a word, we departed to the regret and admiration of all concerned, and left a great many people very sorry behind us. "'Do you stay long here, Littimer?' I said, as he stood waiting to see the coach start. "'No, sir,' he replied. Uh, "'Probably not very long, sir.' "'He can hardly say just now,' observed Steerforth carelessly. "'He knows what he has to do, and he'll do it.' "'That I am sure he will,' I said. Littimer touched his hat in acknowledgment of my good opinion, and I felt about eight years old. He touched it once more, wishing us a good journey, and we left him standing on the pavement, as respectable a mystery as any pyramid in Egypt. For some little time we held no conversation, Steerforth being unusually silent, and I being sufficiently engaged in wondering within myself when I should see the old places again, and what new changes might happen to me or them in the meanwhile. 
At length Steerforth, becoming gay and talkative in a moment, as he could become anything he liked at any moment, pulled me by the arm. Find a voice, David. What about that letter you were speaking of at breakfast? Oh, said I, taking it out of my pocket, it's from my aunt. And what does she say, requiring consideration? Why, she reminds me, Steerforth, said I, that I came out on this expedition to look about me and to think a little. Which, of course, you have done. Indeed, I can't say I have particularly. To tell the truth, I am afraid I have forgotten it. Well, look about you now, and make up for your negligence, said Steerforth. Look to the right, and you'll see a flat country, with a good deal of marsh in it. Look to the left, and you'll see the same. Look to the front, and you'll find no difference. Look to the rear, and there it is still. I laughed, and replied that I saw no suitable profession in the whole prospect, which was perhaps to be attributed to its flatness. What says your aunt on the subject? inquired Steerforth, glancing at the letter in my hand. Does she suggest anything? Why, yes, I said. She asks me here if I think I should like to be a proctor. What do you think of it? Well, I don't know, replied Steerforth coolly. You may as well do that as anything else, I suppose. I could not help laughing again at his balancing all callings and professions so equally, and I told him so. What is a proctor, Steerforth? said I. Why, he's a sort of monkish attorney, replied Steerforth. He is, to some faded courts held in doctors' commons, a lazy old nook near St. Paul's churchyard, what solicitors are to the courts of law and equity. He is a functionary whose existence, in the natural course of things, would have terminated about two hundred years ago. I can tell you best what he is by telling you what doctors' commons is. It's a little out-of-the-way place where they administer what is called ecclesiastical law and play all kinds of tricks with obsolete old monsters of acts of parliament which three-fourths of the world know nothing about and the other fourth supposes to have been dug up in a fossil state in the days of the edwards it is a place that has an ancient monopoly in suits about people's wills and people's marriages and disputes among ships and boats nonsense dear forth i exclaimed you don't mean to say that there is an affinity between nautical matters and ecclesiastical matters i don't indeed my dear boy he returned but I mean to say that they are managed and decided by the same set of people down in that same doctor's commons. You shall go there one day, and find them blundering through half the nautical terms in Young's Dictionary, apropos of the Nancy having run down the Sarah Jane, or Mr. Peggotty and Yarmouth boatmen having put off in a gale of wind with an anchor and cable to the Nelson India man in distress, and you shall go there another day and find them deep in the evidence, pro and con, respecting a clergyman who has misbehaved himself and you shall find the judge in the nautical case the advocate in the clergyman's case or contrariwise they are like actors now a man's a judge and now he is not a judge now he is one thing now he is another now he is something else change and change about but it's always a very pleasant profitable little affair of private theatricals presented to an uncommonly select audience but advocates and proctors are not the same thing said i a little puzzled are they no returned steerforth the advocates are civilians men who have taken a doctor's degree at college which is the first reason of my knowing anything about it the proctors employ the advocates both get very comfortable fees and altogether they make a mighty snug little party on the whole i would recommend you to take the doctor's commons kindly david they plume themselves on their gentility there i can tell you if that's any satisfaction 
I made allowance for Steerforth's light way of treating the subject, and considering it with reference to the staid air of gravity and antiquity which I associated with that lazy old nook near St. Paul's churchyard, did not feel indisposed towards my aunt's suggestion, which she left to my free decision, making no scruple of telling me it had occurred to her on her lately visiting her own proctor in Doctor's Commons for the purpose of settling her will in my favour. "'That's a laudable proceeding on the part of your aunt at all events.' said Steerforth when I mentioned it, and one deserving all encouragement. Daisy, my advice is that you take kindly to Doctor's Commons. I quite made up my mind to do so. I then told Steerforth that my aunt was in town awaiting me, as I found from her letter, and that she had taken lodgings for a week at a kind of private hotel at Lincoln's Inn Fields, where there was a stone staircase and a convenient door in the roof, my aunt being firmly persuaded that every house in London was going to be burnt down every night. We achieved the rest of our journey pleasantly, sometimes recurring to Doctor's Commons, and anticipating the distant days when I should be a proctor there, which Steerforth pictured in a variety of humorous and whimsical lights that made us both merry. When we came to our journey's end, he went home, engaging to call upon me the next day but one, and I drove to Lincoln's Inn Fields, where I found my aunt up and waiting supper. If I had been round the world since we parted, we could hardly have been better pleased to meet again. My aunt cried outright as she embraced me, and said, pretending to laugh, that if my poor mother had been alive, that silly little creature would have shed tears, she had no doubt. "'So you have left Mr. Dick behind, aunt,' said I. "'I am sorry for that. Ah, Janet, how do you do?' As Janet curtsied, hoping I was well, I observed my aunt's visage lengthen very much. "'I am sorry for it, too,' said my aunt, rubbing her nose. "'I have had no peace of mind, Trot, since I have been here.' Before I could ask why, she told me. "'I am convinced,' said my aunt, laying her hand with melancholy firmness on the table, "'that Dick's character is not a character to keep the donkeys off. I am confident he wants strength of purpose. I ought to have left Janet at home instead, and then my mind might perhaps have been at ease. If ever there was a donkey trespassing on my green—' said my aunt with emphasis. There was one this afternoon at four o'clock. A cold feeling came over me from head to foot, and I know it was a donkey. I tried to comfort her on this point, but she rejected consolation. It was a donkey, said my aunt, and it was the one with the stumpy tail which that murdering sister of a woman rode when she came to my house. This has been ever since the only name my aunt knew for Miss Murdstone. If there is any donkey in Dover whose audacity is harder to me to bear than another's, that, said my aunt, striking the table, is the animal. Janet ventured to suggest that my aunt might be disturbing herself unnecessarily, and that she believed the donkey in question was then engaged in the sand and gravel line of business, and was not available for the purposes of trespass. But my aunt wouldn't hear of it. Supper was comfortably served and hot, though my aunt's rooms were very high up, whether that she might have more stone stairs for her money, or might be nearer to the door and the roof, I don't know, and consisted of roast fowl, a steak, some vegetables, to all of which I did ample justice, and which were all excellent. But my aunt had her own ideas concerning London provisions, and ate but little. "'I suppose this unfortunate fowl was born and brought up in a cellar,' said my aunt, "'and never took the air except on a hackney coach-stand.' i hope the steak may be beef but i don't believe it nothing's genuine in the place in my opinion but the dirt don't you think the fowl may have come out of the country aunt i hinted certainly not returned my aunt 
It would be no pleasure to a London tradesman to sell anything that was what he pretended it was. I did not venture to controvert this opinion, but I made a good supper, which had greatly satisfied her to see me do. When the table was cleared, Janet assisted her to arrange her hair, to put on her nightcap, which was of a smarter construction than usual, in case a fire, my aunt said, and to fold her gown back over her knees, these being her usual preparations for warming herself before going to bed. I then made her, according to certain established regulations from which no deviation, however slight, could ever be permitted, a glass of hot wine and water, and a slice of toast cut into long, thin strips. With these accompaniments we were left alone to finish the evening, my aunt sitting opposite to me, drinking her wine and water, soaking her strips of toast in it one by one before eating them, and looking benignantly on me from among the borders of her nightcap. "'Well, Trot,' she began, "'what do you think of the Proctor plan, or have you not begun to think about it yet?' "'I have thought a good deal about it, my dear aunt, and I have talked a good deal about it with Steerforth. I like it very much indeed. I like it exceedingly.' "'Come,' said my aunt, "'that's cheering.' "'I have only one difficulty, aunt.' "'Say what it is, Trot,' she returned. "'Why, I want to ask, aunt, as it seems, from what I understand, to be a limited profession, whether my entrance into it would not be very expensive.' "'It will cost,' returned my aunt, "'to article you just a thousand pounds.' "'Now, my dear aunt,' said I, drawing my chair nearer, "'I am uneasy in my mind about that. It is a large sum of money.' You have expended a great deal on my education, and have always been as liberal to me in all things as it was possible to be. You have been the soul of generosity. Surely there are some ways in which I might begin life with hardly any outlay, and yet begin with a good hope of getting on by resolution and exertion. Are you sure that it would not be better to try that course? Are you certain that you can afford to part with so much money, and that it is right that it should be so expended? I only ask you, my second mother, to consider, are you certain? My aunt finished eating the piece of toast on which she was then engaged, looking me full in the face all the while, and then, setting her glass on the chimney-piece and folding her hands upon her folded skirts, replied as follows. "'Trot, my child, if I have any object in life it is to provide for your being a good, a sensible, and a happy man. I am bent upon it, and so is Dick. I should like some people that I know to hear Dick's conversation on the subject. Its sagacity is wonderful.' but no one knows the resources of that man's intellect except myself she stopped for a moment to take my hand between hers and went on it is in vain trot to recall the past unless it works some influence upon the present perhaps i might have been better friends with your poor father perhaps i might have been better friends with that poor child your mother even after your sister betsy trotwood disappointed me when you came to me a little runaway boy all dusty and wayworn perhaps i thought so from that time until now, Trot, you have ever been a credit to me, and a pride and a pleasure. I have no other claim upon my means. At least—here to my surprise she hesitated, and was confused. Uh, no, I have no other claim upon my means. You are my adopted child. Only be a loving child to me in my old age, and bear with my whims and fancies, and you will do more for an old woman whose prime of life was not so happy or conciliating as it might have been, than ever that old woman did for you. It was the first time I had heard my aunt refer to her past history. There was a magnanimity in her quiet way of doing so, and of dismissing it, which would have exalted her in my respect and affection, if anything could. "'All is agreed and understood between us now, Trot,' said my aunt, "'and we need talk of this no more. Give me a kiss, and we'll go to the Commons after breakfast to-morrow.' 
We had a long chat by the fire before we went to bed. I slept in a room on the same floor with my aunt's, and was a little disturbed in the course of the night by her knocking at my door as often as she was agitated by a distant sound of hackney-coaches or market-carts, and inquiring if I heard the engines. But towards the morning she slept better, and suffered me to do so too. About midday we set off for the offices of Messrs. Spendlow and Jorkins in Doctors' Commons. My aunt, who had this other general opinion in reference to London, that every man she saw was a pickpocket, gave me her purse to carry for her, which had ten guineas in it and some silver. We made a pause at a toy shop in Fleet Street to see the giants of St. Dunstan strike upon the bells. We had timed our going so as to catch them at it at twelve o'clock, and then went on towards Ludgate Hill and St. Paul's Churchyard. We were crossing to the former place when I found that my aunt greatly accelerated her speed and looked frightened. I observed at the same time that a lowering, ill-dressed man who had stopped and stared at us in passing, a little before, was coming so close after us as to brush against her. "'Trot, my dear Trot,' cried my aunt in a terrified whisper, and pressing my arm, "'I don't know what I am to do.' "'Don't be alarmed,' said I. "'There's nothing to be afraid of. Step into a shop, and I'll soon get rid of this fellow.' "'No, no, child,' she returned. "'Don't speak to him for the world. I entreat you. I order you.' "'Good heaven, aunt,' said I, "'he's nothing but a sturdy beggar.' "'You don't know what he is,' replied my aunt. "'You don't know who he is. You don't know what you say.' We had stopped in an empty doorway while this was passing, and he had stopped too. "'Don't look at him,' said my aunt, as I turned my head indignantly. "'But get me a coach, my dear, and wait for me in St. Paul's Churchyard.' "'Wait for you?' I replied. "'Yes,' rejoined my aunt. "'I must go alone. I must go with him.' "'With him, aunt, this man.' "'I am in my senses,' she replied, "'and I tell you I must. Get me a coach.' However much astonished I might be, I was sensible that I had no right to refuse compliance with such a peremptory command. I hurried away a few paces and called a hackney chariot which was passing empty. Almost before I could let the steps down, my aunt sprang in, I don't know how, and the man followed. She waved her hand to me to go away so earnestly that, all confounded as I was, I turned from them at once. In doing so, I heard her say to the coachman, "'Drive anywhere. Drive straight on.' And presently the chariot passed me, going up the hill. What Mr. Dick had told me, and what I had supposed to be a delusion of his, now came into my mind. I could not doubt that this person was the person of whom he had made such mysterious mention, though what the nature of his hold upon my aunt could possibly be I was quite unable to imagine. After half an hour's cooling in the churchyard I saw the chariot coming back. The driver stopped beside me, and my aunt was sitting in it alone. She had not yet sufficiently recovered from her agitation to be quite prepared for the visit we had to make. She desired me to get into the chariot and to tell the coachman to drive slowly up and down a little while. She said no more except, "'My dear child, never ask me what it was, and don't refer to it,' until she had perfectly regained her composure when she told me that she was quite herself now, and we might get out. On giving me her purse to pay the driver, I found that all the guineas were gone, and only the loose silver remained. Doctor's Commons was approached by a little low archway. Before we had taken many paces down the street beyond it, the noise of the city seemed to melt, as if by magic, into a softened distance. A few dull courts and narrow ways brought us to the sky-lighted offices of Spendlow and Jorkins, in the vestibule of which temple, accessible to pilgrims without the ceremony of knocking, three or four clerks were at work as copyists. 
one of these a little dry man sitting by himself who wore a stiff brown wig that looked as if it were made of gingerbread rose to receive my aunt and show us into mr spenlow's room mr spenlow's in coat ma'am said the dry man it's the arches day but it's close by and i'll send for him directly as we were left to look about us while mr spenlow was fetched i availed myself of the opportunity the furniture of the room was old-fashioned and dusty and the green baize on the top of the writing-table had lost all its colour and was as withered and pale as an old pauper there were a great many bundles of papers on it some endorsed as allegations and some to my surprise as libels and some as being in the consistory court and some in the arches court and some in the prerogative court and some in the admiralty court and some in the delegates court giving me occasion to wonder much how many courts there might be in the gross and how long it would take to understand them all besides these there were sundry immense manuscript books of evidence taken on affidavit strongly bound and tied together in massive sets set to each cause as if every cause were a history in ten or twelve volumes all this looked tolerably expensive i thought and gave me an agreeable notion of a proctor's business i was casting my eyes with increasing complacency over these and many similar objects when hasty footsteps were heard in the room outside and mr spenlow in a black gown trimmed with white fur came hurrying in taking off his hat as he came he was a little light-haired man with undeniable boots and the stiffest of white cravats and shirt collars he was buttoned up mighty trim and tight and must have taken a great deal of pains with his whiskers which were accurately curled his gold watch-chain was so massive that a fancy came across me that he ought to have a sinewy golden arm to draw it out with like those which are put up over the gold-beater's shops he was got up with such care and was so stiff that he could hardly bend himself being obliged when he glanced at some papers on his desk after sitting down in his chair to move his whole body from the bottom of his spine like punch i had previously been presented by my aunt and had been courteously received he now said and so mr copperfield you think of entering into our profession i casually mentioned to miss trotwood when i had the pleasure of an interview with her the other day with another inclination of his body punch again uh, that there was a vacancy here uh, miss trotwood was good enough to mention that she had a nephew who was her peculiar care and for whom she was seeking to provide genteely in life uh, that nephew i believe i now have the pleasure of punch again I bowed my acknowledgments, and said that my aunt had mentioned to me that there was that opening, and said that I believed I should like it very much, that I was strongly inclined to like it, and had taken immediately to the proposal, that I could not absolutely pledge myself to like it until I knew something more about it, and though it was little else than a matter of form, I presume I should have an opportunity of trying how I liked it before I bound myself to it irrevocably. "'No, oh, surely, surely,' said Mr. Spenlow we always in this house propose a month an initiatory month i should be happy myself to propose two months three an indefinite period in fact but i have a partner mr jorkins and the premium sir i returned is a thousand pounds and the premium stamp included is a thousand pounds said mr spenlow as i have mentioned to miss trotwood i am actuated by no mercenary considerations a few men are less so i believe but mr jorkins has his opinions on these subjects and i am bound to respect mr jorkins's opinions mr jorkins thinks a thousand pounds too little in short i suppose sir 
said I, still desiring to spare my aunt, that it is not the custom here if an articled clerk were particularly useful, and made himself a perfect master in his profession. I could not help blushing. This looked so like praising myself. I suppose it is not the custom, in the later years of his time, to allow him any— Mr. Spendlow, by great effort, just lifted his head far enough out of his cravat to shake it, and answered, anticipating the word, salary. Uh, no, I will not say what consideration I might give to that point myself, Mr. Copperfield, if I were unfettered. Uh, Mr. Jorkins is immovable. I was quite dismayed by the idea of this terrible Jorkins, but I found out afterwards that he was a mild man of a heavy temperament, whose place in the business was to keep himself in the background, and be constantly exhibited by name as the most obdurate and ruthless of men. If a clerk wanted his salary raised, Mr. Jorkins wouldn't listen to such a proposition. If a client were slow to settle his bill of costs, Mr. Jorkins was resolved to have it paid, and however painful these things might be, and always were, to the feelings of Mr. Spendlow, Mr. Jorkins would have his bond. The heart and hand of the good angel Spendlow would have always been open, but for the restraining demon Jorkins. As I have grown older, I think I have had experience of some other houses doing business on the principle of Spendlow and Jorkins. It was settled that I should begin my month's probation as soon as I pleased, and that my aunt need neither remain in town nor return at its expiration, as the articles of the agreement, of which I was to be the subject, could easily be sent to her at home for her signature. When we had got so far, Mr. Spendlow offered to take me into court then and there, and show me what sort of place it was. As I was willing enough to know, we went out with this object, leaving my aunt behind, who would trust herself, she said, in no such place, and who, I think, regarded all courts of law as a sort of powder-mills that might blow up at any time. Mr. Spendlow conducted me through a paved courtyard formed of grave brick houses, which I inferred from the doctor's names upon the doors, to be the official abiding-places of the learned advocates of whom Steerforth had told me, and into a large, dull room, not unlike a chapel to my thinking, on the left hand. The upper part of this room was fenced off from the rest, and there, on the two sides of a raised platform of the horseshoe form, sitting on easy old-fashioned dining-room chairs, were sundry gentlemen in red gowns and grey wigs, whom I found to be the doctors aforesaid. Blinking over a little desk like a pulpit-desk in the curve of the horseshoe was an old gentleman, whom, if I had seen him in a knavery, I should certainly have taken for an owl, but who, I learned, was the presiding judge. In the space within the horseshoe, lower than these, that is to say, on about the level of the floor, were sundry other gentlemen, of Mr. Spendlow's rank, and dressed like him in black gowns with white fur upon them, sitting at a long green table. Their cravats were in general stiff, I thought, and their looks haughty, but in this last respect I presently conceived that I had done them an injustice, for when two or three of them had to rise to answer a question of the presiding dignitary, I never saw anything more sheepish. The public, represented by a boy with a comforter, and a shabby, genteel man secretly eating crumbs out of his coat-pockets, was warming itself at a stove in the centre of the court. The languid stillness of the place was only broken by the chirping of this fire, and by the voice of one of the doctors, who was wandering slowly through a perfect library of evidence, and stopping to put up from time to time at little roadside inns of argument on the journey. Altogether I have never, on any occasion, made one at such a cosy, dozy, old-fashioned, time-forgotten, sleepy-headed little family party in all my life, and I felt it would be quite a soothing opiate to belong to it in any character, 
except perhaps as a suitor. Very well satisfied with the dreamy nature of this retreat, I informed Mr. Spendlow that I had seen quite enough for that time, and we rejoined my aunt, in company with whom I presently departed from the commons, feeling very young when I went out of Spendlow and Jorkins on account of the clerks poking one another with their pens to point me out. We arrived at Lincoln's Inn Fields without any new adventures, except encountering an unlucky donkey at a costermonger's cart, who suggested painful associations to my aunt. We had another long talk about my plans when we were safely housed, and as I knew she was anxious to get home, and between fire, food and pickpockets could never be considered at her ease for half an hour in London, I urged her not to be uncomfortable on my account, but to leave me to take care of myself. "'I have not been here a week to-morrow, without considering that too, my dear,' she returned. "'There is a furnished little set of chambers to be let in the Adelphi trot, which ought to suit you a marvel.' With this brief introduction, she produced from her pocket an advertisement, carefully cut out of a newspaper, setting forth that in Buckingham Street, in the Adelphi, there was to be let furnished, with a view of the river, a singularly desirable and compact set of chambers, forming a genteel residence for a young gentleman, a member of one of the inns of court, or otherwise, with immediate possession. Terms moderate, and could be taken for a month only, if required. "'Why, this is the very thing, aunt,' said I, flushed with the possible dignity of living in chambers. "'Then come,' replied my aunt, immediately resuming the bonnet she had a minute before laid aside. "'We'll go and look at them.' Away we went. The advertisement directed us to apply to Mrs. Crupp on the premises, and we rung the area bell which we supposed to communicate with Mrs. Crupp. It was not until we had rung three or four times that we could prevail upon Mrs. Crupp to communicate with us, but at last she appeared, being a stout lady with a flounce of flannel petticoat below a nankeen gown. "'Let us see these chambers of yours, if you please, ma'am,' said my aunt. "'For this gentleman?' said Mrs. Crupp, feeling in her pocket for the keys. "'Yes, for my nephew,' said my aunt. "'And as sweet said they is for such,' said Mrs. Crupp. So we went upstairs. They were at the top of the house, a great point with my aunt being near the fire escape, and consisted of a little half-blind entry where you could see hardly anything, a little stone-blind pantry where you could see nothing at all, a sitting-room and a bedroom. The furniture was rather faded, but quite good enough for me, and, sure enough, the river was outside the windows. As I was delighted with the place, my aunt and Mrs. Crupp withdrew to the pantry to discuss the terms, while I remained on the sitting-room sofa, hardly daring to think it possible that I could be destined to live in such a noble residence. After a single combat of some duration, they returned, and I saw, to my joy, both in Mrs. Crupp's countenance and in my aunt's, that the deed was done. "'Is this the last occupant's furniture?' inquired my aunt. "'Yes, it is, ma'am,' said Mrs. Crupp. "'What's become of them?' asked my aunt. Mrs. Crupp was taken with a troublesome cough, in the midst of which she articulated with much difficulty. "'He was took ill here, ma'am, and—' <coughs> "'Indear me, and he died.' "'Eh? What did he die of?' asked my aunt. "'Well, ma'am, he died of drink.' said Mrs. Crupp in confidence, and smoke. "'Smoke? Do you mean chimneys?' said my aunt. "'No, ma'am,' returned Mrs. Crupp. "'Cigars and pipes.' "'That's not catching trot at any rate,' remarked my aunt, turning to me. "'No, indeed,' said I. In short, my aunt, seeing how enraptured I was with the premises, took them for a month, with leave to remain for twelve months when that time was out. 
Mrs. Crupp was to find linen and to cook. Every other necessary was already provided, and Mrs. Crupp expressly intimated that she should always yearn towards me as a son. I was to take possession the day after tomorrow, and Mrs. Crupp said, thank heaven she had now found someone she could care for. On our way back, my aunt informed me how she confidently trusted that the life I was now to lead would make me firm and self-reliant, which was all I wanted. She repeated this several times next day, in the intervals of our arranging for the transmission of my clothes and books from Mr. Wickfield's, relative to which, and to all my late holiday, I wrote a long letter to Agnes, of which my aunt took charge, as she was to leave on the succeeding day. Not to lengthen these particulars, I need only add that she made a handsome provision for all my possible wants during my month of trial, that Steerforth, to my great disappointment and to hers too, did not make his appearance before she went away, that I saw her safely seated on the Dover coach, exulting in the coming discomfiture of the vagrant donkeys, with Janet at her side, and that when the coach was gone I turned my face to the Adelphi, pondering on the old days when I used to roam about its subterranean arches and on the happy changes which had brought me to the surface. End of chapter 23
was it really though and so forth so often that she got everything out of me she wanted to know her appearance was exactly what i have described it when i first saw her but the society of the two ladies was so agreeable and came so natural to me that i felt myself falling a little in love with her i could not help thinking several times in the course of the evening and particularly when i walked home at night what delightful company she would be in buckingham street i was taking my coffee and roll in the morning before going to the commons and i may observe in this place that it is surprising how much coffee mrs crupp used and how weak it was considering when steerforth himself walked in to my unbounded joy my dear steerforth cried i i began to think i should never see you again i was carried off by force of arms said steerforth the very next morning after i got home why daisy what a rare old bachelor you are here i showed him over the establishment not omitting the pantry with no little pride and he commended it highly i tell you what old boy he added i shall make quite a town-house of this place unless you give me notice to quit this was a delightful hearing i told him if he waited for that he would have to wait till doomsday but you shall have some breakfast said i with my hand on the bell-rope and mrs crupp shall make you some fresh coffee and i'll toast you some bacon on an old bachelor's dutch oven that i've got here uh, no no said steerforth don't ring i can't i am going to breakfast with one of those fellows who is at the piazza hotel in covent garden but you'll come back to dinner said i i can't upon my life there's nothing i should like better but i must remain with these two fellows we are all three off together to-morrow morning then bring them here to dinner returned i do you think they would come oh they'd come fast enough said steerforth but we should inconvenience you you had better come and dine with us somewhere i would not by any means consent to this for it occurred to me that i really ought to have a little housewarming and that there never could be a better opportunity i had a new pride in my rooms after his approval of them and burned with a desire to develop their utmost resources i therefore made him promise positively in the names of his two friends and we appointed six o'clock as the dinner hour when he was gone i rang for mrs crupp and acquainted her with my desperate design mrs crupp said in the first place of course it was well known she could not be expected to wait but she knew a handy young man who she thought could be prevailed upon to do it and whose terms would be five shillings and what i pleased i said certainly we would have him next mrs crupp said it was clear she couldn't be in two places at once which i felt to be reasonable and that a young gal stationed in the pantry with a bedroom candle there never to desist from washing plates would be indispensable i said what would be the expense of this young female and mrs crupp said she supposed eighteen pence would neither make me or break me i said i supposed not and that was settled then mrs crupp said now about the dinner it was a remarkable instance of want of forethought on the part of the ironmonger who had made mrs crupp's kitchen fireplace that it was capable of cooking nothing but chops and mashed potatoes as to a fish kettle mrs crupp said well would i only come and look at the range she couldn't say fairer than that would i come and look at it as i should not have been much the wiser if i had looked at it i declined and said never mind fish but mrs crupp said don't say that oysters was in why not them so that was settled mrs crupp then said what she would recommend would be this a pair of hot roast fowls from the pastry-cooks a dish of stewed beef with vegetables from the pastry-cooks two little corner things as a raised pie and a dish of kidneys from the pastry-cooks a tart 
and if i liked a shape of jelly from the pastry cooks this mrs crupp said would leave her at full liberty to concentrate her mind on the potatoes and to serve up the cheese and celery as she could wish to see it done i acted upon mrs crupp's opinion and gave the order at the pastry cooks myself walking along the strand afterwards and observing a hard mottled substance in the window of a ham and beef shop which resembled marble but was labelled mock turtle i went in and bought a slab of it which i have since seen reason to believe would have sufficed for fifteen people this preparation mrs crupp after some difficulty consented to warm up and it shrunk so much in a liquid state that we found it what steerforth called rather a tight fit for four these preparations happily completed i bought a little dessert in covent garden market and gave a rather extensive order at a retail wine merchant's in that vicinity when i came home in the afternoon and saw the bottles drawn up in a square on the pantry floor they looked so numerous though there were two missing which made mrs crupp very uncomfortable that i was absolutely frightened at them one of steerforth's friends was named granger and the other markham they were both very gay and lively fellows granger something older than steerforth markham youthful looking and i should say not more than twenty i observed that the latter always spoke of himself indefinitely as a man and seldom or ever in the first person singular a man might get on very well here mr copperfield said markham meaning himself it's not a bad situation said i and the rooms are really commodious i hope you've both brought appetites with you said steerforth upon my honour returned markham town seems to sharpen a man's appetite a man is hungry all day long a man is perpetually eating being a little embarrassed at first and feeling much too young to preside i made steerforth take the head of the table when dinner was announced and seated myself opposite to him everything was very good we did not spare the wine and he exerted himself so brilliantly to make the thing pass off well that there was no pause in our festivity i was not quite such good company during dinner as i could have wished to be for my chair was opposite the door and my attention was distracted by observing that the handy young man went out of the room very often and that his shadow always presented itself immediately afterwards on the wall of the entry with a bottle at his mouth the young gal likewise occasioned me some uneasiness not so much by neglecting to wash the plates as by breaking them for being of an inquisitive disposition and unable to confine herself as her positive instructions were to the pantry she was constantly peering in at us and constantly imagining herself detected in which belief she several times retired upon the plates with which she had carefully paved the floor and did a great deal of destruction these however were small drawbacks and easily forgotten when the cloth was cleared and the dessert put on the table at which period of the entertainment the handy young man was discovered to be speechless giving him private directions to seek the society of mrs crupp and to remove the young gal to the basement also i abandoned myself to enjoyment i began by being singularly cheerful and light-hearted all sorts of half-forgotten things to talk about came rushing into my mind and made me hold forth in a most unwonted manner i laughed heartily at my own jokes and at everybody else's called steerforth to order for not passing the wine and made several engagements to go to oxford announced that i meant to have a dinner-party exactly like that once a week until further notice and madly took so much snuff out of grange's box that i was obliged to go into the pantry and have a private fit of sneezing ten minutes long 
I went on by passing the wine faster and faster yet, and continually starting up with a corkscrew to open more wine long before any was needed. I proposed Steerforth's health. I said he was my dearest friend, the protector of my boyhood and the companion of my prime. I said I was delighted to propose his health. I said I owed him more obligations than I could ever repay. I held him in a higher admiration than I could ever express. I finished by saying, I'll give you Steerforth. God bless him. Hurrah! We gave him three times three and another, and a good one to finish with. I broke my glass in going round the table to shake hands with him, and I said in two words, Steerforth, you're the guiding star of my existence. I went on by finding suddenly that somebody was in the middle of a song. Markham was the singer, and he sang, When the heart of a man is depressed with care. He said when he had sung it he would give us woman. I took objection to that, and I couldn't allow it. I said it was not a respectful way of proposing the toast, and I would never permit that toast to be drunk in my house otherwise than as the ladies. I was very high with them, mainly, I think, because I saw Steerforth and Granger laughing at me, or at him, or at both of us. He said a man was not to be dictated to. I said a man was. He said a man was not to be insulted then. I said he was right there, never under my roof, where the lares were sacred and the laws of hospitality paramount. He said it was no derogation from a man's dignity to confess that I was a devilish good fellow. I instantly proposed his health. Somebody was smoking. We were all smoking. I was smoking and trying to suppress a rising tendency to shudder. Steerforth had made a speech about me, in the course of which I had been affected almost to tears. I returned thanks, and hoped the present company would dine with me to-morrow, and the day after, each day at five o'clock, that we might enjoy the pleasures of conversation and society through a long evening. I felt called upon to propose an individual, and would give them my aunt, Miss Betsy Trotwood, the best of her sex. Somebody was leaning out of my bedroom window, refreshing his forehead against the cool stone of the parapet, and feeling the air upon his face. It was myself. I was addressing myself as Copperfield, and saying, Why did you try to smoke? You might have known you couldn't do it. Now somebody was unsteadily contemplating his features in the looking-glass. That was I, too. I was very pale in the looking-glass. My eyes had a vacant appearance, and my hair, only my hair, nothing else, looked drunk. Somebody said to me, Let us go to the theatre, Copperfield. There was no bedroom before me, but again the jingling table covered with glasses, the lamp, Granger on my right hand, Markham on my left, and Steerforth opposite me, all sitting in a mist and a long way off. The theatre, to be sure, the very thing. Come along. But they must excuse me if I saw everybody out first, and turned the lamp off in case of fire. Owing to some confusion in the dark, the door was gone. I was feeling for it in the window-curtains when Steerforth, laughing, took me by the arm and led me out. We went downstairs one behind another. Near the bottom somebody fell and rolled down. Somebody else said it was Copperfield. I was angry at that false report, until finding myself on my back in the passage I began to think there might be some foundation for it. A very foggy night with great rings around the lamps in the streets. There was an indistinct talk of its being wet. I considered it frosty. Steerforth dusted me under a lamp and put my hat into shape, which somebody produced from somewhere in a most extraordinary manner, for I hadn't had it on before. Steerforth then said, You are all right, Copperfield, are you not? And I told him, Never bear.
a man sitting in a pigeonhole place looked out of the fog and took money from somebody inquiring if i was one of the gentlemen paid for and appearing rather doubtful as i remember in the glimpse i had of him whether to take the money from me or not shortly afterwards we were very high up in a very hot theatre looking down into a large pit that seemed to me to smoke the people with whom it was crammed were so indistinct there was a great stage too looking very clean and smooth after the streets and there were people upon it talking about something or other but not at all intelligibly there was an abundance of bright lights and there was music and there were ladies down in the boxes and i don't know what more the whole building looked to me as if it were learning to swim it conducted itself in such an unaccountable manner when i tried to steady it on somebody's motion we resolved to go downstairs to the dress-boxes where the ladies were a gentleman lounging fully dressed on a sofa with an opera-glass in his hand passed before my view and also my own figure at full length in a glass then i was being ushered into one of these boxes and found myself saying something as i sat down and people about me crying silence to somebody and ladies casting indignant glances at me and what yes agnes sitting in the seat before me in the same box with a lady and gentleman beside her whom i didn't know i see her face now better than i did then i dare say with its indelible look of regret and wonder turned upon me agnes i said thickly lord bless me agnes hush pray she answered i could not conceive why you disturb the company look at the stage i tried on her injunction to fix it and to hear something of what was going on there but quite in vain i looked at her again by and by and saw her shrink into her corner and put her gloved hand to her forehead agnes said i i'm afraid you're not well yes yes don't mind me trotwood she returned listen are you going away soon am i going away soon i repeated yes i had a stupid intention of replying that i was going to wait to hand her downstairs i suppose i expressed it somehow for after she had looked at me attentively for a while she appeared to understand and replied in a low tone i know you will do as i ask if i tell you i am very earnest in it go away now trotwood for my sake and ask your friends to take you home she had so far improved me for the time that though i was angry with her i felt ashamed and with a short cry which i intended for good-night got up and went away they followed and i stepped at once out of the box-door into my bedroom where only steerforth was with me helping me to undress and where i was by turns telling him that agnes was my sister and adjuring him to bring the corkscrew that i might open another bottle of wine how somebody lying in my bed lay saying and doing all this over again at cross purposes in a feverish dream all night the bed a rocking sea that was never still how as that somebody slowly settled down into myself did i begin to parch and feel as if my outer covering of skin were a hard board my tongue the bottom of an empty kettle furred with long service and burning up over a slow fire the palms of my hands hot plates of metal which no ice could cool but the agony of mind the remorse and shame i felt when i became conscious next day my horror of having committed a thousand offences i had forgotten and which nothing could ever expiate my recollection of that indelible look which agnes had given me the torturing impossibility of communicating with her not knowing beast that i was how she came to be in london or where she stayed my disgust at the very sight of the room where the revel had been held my racking head the smell of smoke the sight of glass 
glasses the impossibility of going out or even getting up oh what a day it was oh what an evening when i sat down by my fire to a basin of mutton broth dimpled all over with fat and thought i was going the way of my predecessor and should succeed to his dismal story as well as to the chambers and had half a mind to rush express to dover and reveal all what an evening when mrs crupp coming in to take away the broth basin produced one kidney on a cheese plate as the entire remains of yesterday's feast and i was really inclined to fall upon her nankeen breast and say in heartfelt penitence oh mrs crupp mrs crupp never mind the broken meats i am very miserable only that i doubted even at that pass if mrs crupp were quite the sort of woman to confide in End of chapter 24chapter twenty five of david copperfield this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tige hines david copperfield by charles dickens chapter twenty five good and bad angels i was going out at my door on the morning after that deplorable day of headache sickness and repentance with an odd confusion in my mind relative to the date of my dinner-party as if a body of titans had taken an enormous lever and pushed the day before yesterday some months back when i saw a ticket-porter coming upstairs with a letter in his hand he was taking his time about his errand then but when he saw me on the top of the staircase looking at him over the banisters he swung into a trot and came panting as if he had run himself into a state of exhaustion t copperfield esquire said the ticket-porter touching his hat with his little cane i could scarcely lay claim to the name i was so disturbed by the conviction that the letter came from agnes however i told him i was t copperfield esquire and he believed it and gave me the letter which he said required an answer i shut him out on the landing to wait for the answer and went into my chambers again in such a nervous state that i was fain to lay the letter down on my breakfast-table and familiarise myself with the outside of it a little before i could resolve to break the seal i found when i did open it that it was a very kind note containing no reference to my condition at the theatre all it said was my dear trotwood i am staying at the house of papa's agent mr waterbrook in eli place holborn will you come and see me to-day at any time you would like to appoint ever yours affectionately agnes it took me such a long time to write an answer at all to my satisfaction that i don't know what the ticket-porter can have thought unless he thought i was learning to write i must have written half a dozen letters at least i began one how can i ever hope my dear agnes to efface from your remembrance the disgusting impression there i didn't like it and i tore it up i began another shakespeare has observed my dear agnes how strange it is that a man should put an enemy into his mouth that reminded me of markham and it got no farther i even tried poetry i began one note in a six-syllable line oh do not remember but that associated itself with the fifth of november and became an absurdity after many attempts i wrote my dear agnes your letter is like you and what could i say of it that would be higher praise than that i will come at four o'clock affectionately and sorrowfully t c with this missive which i was in twenty minds at once about recalling as soon as it was out of my hands the ticket-porter at last departed if the day were half as tremendous to any other professional gentleman in doctor's commons as it was to me i sincerely believe he made some expiation for his share in that rotten old ecclesiastical cheese although i left the office at half-past three and was prowling about the place of appointment within a few minutes afterwards 
the appointed time was exceeded by a full quarter of an hour according to the clock of st andrew's holborn before i could muster up sufficient desperation to pull the private bell-handle let into the left-hand door-post of mr waterbrook's house the professional business of mr waterbrook's establishment was done on the ground floor and the genteel business of which there was a good deal in the upper part of the building i was shown into a pretty but rather close drawing-room and there sat agnes netting a purse she looked so quiet and good and reminded me so strongly of my airy fresh school-days at canterbury and the sodden smoky stupid wretch i had been the other night that nobody being by i yielded to my self-reproach and shame and in short made a fool of myself i cannot deny that i shed tears to this hour i am undecided whether it was upon the whole the wisest thing i could have done or the most ridiculous if it had been any one but you agnes i said turning away my head i should not have minded it half so much but that it should have been you who saw me i almost wish i had been dead first she put her hand its touch was like no other hand upon my arm for a moment and i felt so befriended and comforted that i could not help moving it to my lips and gratefully kissing it sit down said agnes cheerfully don't be unhappy trotwood if you cannot confidently trust me whom can you trust oh agnes i returned you are my good angel she smiled rather sadly i thought and shook her head yes agnes my good angel always my good angel if i were indeed trotwood she returned there is one thing that i should set my heart on very much i looked at her inquiringly but already with a foreknowledge of her meaning on warning you said agnes with a steady glance against your bad angel my dear agnes i began you mean steerforth i do trotwood she returned then agnes you wrong him very much he my bad angel or any one's he anything but a guide a support and a friend to me my dear agnes now is it not unjust and unlike you to judge him from what you saw of me the other night i do not judge him from what i saw of you the other night she quietly replied from what then well, from many things trifles in themselves but they do not seem to me to be so when they are put together i judge him partly from your account of him trotwood and your character and the influence he has over you there was always something in her modest voice that seemed to touch a chord within me answering to that sound alone it was always earnest but when it was very earnest as it was now there was a thrill in it that quite subdued me i sat looking at her as she cast her eyes down on her work i sat seeming still to listen to her and steerforth in spite of all my attachment to him darkened in that tone it's very bold in me said agnes looking up again who have lived in such seclusion and can know so little of the world to give you my advice so confidently or even to have this strong opinion but i know in what it is engendered trotwood in how true a remembrance of our having grown up together and in how true an interest in all relating to you it is that which makes me bold i am certain that what i say is right i am quite sure it is i feel as if it were someone else speaking to you and not i when i caution you that you have made a dangerous friend again i looked at her again i listened to her after she was silent and again his image though it was still fixed in my heart darkened i am not so unreasonable as to expect said agnes resuming her usual tone after a little while that you will or that you can at once change any sentiment that has become a conviction in you least of all the sentiment that is rooted in your trusting disposition you ought not hastily do that 
I only ask you, Trotwood, if you ever think of me, I mean, with a quiet smile, for I was going to interrupt her, and she knew why, as often as you think of me, to think of what I have said. Do you forgive me for all this?' i will forgive you agnes i replied when you come to do steerforth justice and to like him as well as i do not until then said agnes i saw a passing shadow on her face when i made this mention of him but she returned my smile and we were again as unreserved in our mutual confidence as of old and when agnes i said will you forgive me the other night when i recall it said agnes she would have dismissed the subject so but i was too full of it to allow that and insisted on telling her how it happened that i had disgraced myself and what chain of accidental circumstances had had the theatre for its final link it was a great relief to me to do this and to enlarge on the obligation that i owed to steerforth for his care of me when i was unable to take care of myself you must not forget said agnes calmly changing the conversation as soon as i had concluded that you are always to tell me not only when you fall into trouble but when you fall in love who has succeeded to miss larkins trotwood no one agnes someone trotwood said agnes laughing and holding up her finger no agnes upon my word there is a lady certainly at mrs steerforth's house who is very clever and whom i like to talk to miss dartle but i don't adore her agnes laughed again at her own penetration and told me that if i were faithful to her in my confidence she thought she would keep a little register of my violent attachments with the date duration and termination of each like the table of the reigns of the kings and queens in the history of england then she asked me if i had seen uriah uriah heep said i no is he in london he comes to the office downstairs every day returned agnes he was in london a week before me I am afraid on disagreeable business, Trotwood. On some business that makes you uneasy, Agnes, I see, said I. What can that be? Agnes laid aside her work, and replied, folding her hands upon one another, and looking pensively at me out of those beautiful, soft eyes of hers. I believe he is going to enter into partnership with Papa. What? Uriah, that mean, fawning fellow, worm himself into such promotion? I cried indignantly. Have you made no remonstrance about it, Agnes? Consider what a connection he is likely to be. You must speak out. You must not allow your father to take such a mad step. You must prevent it, Agnes, while there's time. Still looking at me, Agnes shook her head while I was speaking, with a faint smile at my warmth, and then replied, You remember our last conversation about papa? It was not long after that, not more than two or three days, when he gave the first intimation of what I tell you. It was sad to see him struggling between his desire to represent it to me as a matter of choice on his part, and his inability to conceal that it was forced upon him. I felt very sorry. Forced upon him, Agnes? Who forces it upon him? Uriah, she replied after a moment's hesitation, has made himself indispensable to Papa. He is subtle and watchful. He has mastered Papa's weaknesses, fostered them, and taken advantage of them, until— to say all that i mean in a word trotwood papa is afraid of him there was more that she might have said more that she knew or that she suspected i clearly saw i could not give her pain by asking what it was for i knew that she withheld it from me to spare her father it had long been going on to this i was sensible yes i could not but feel on the least reflection that it had been going on to this for a long time i remained silent his ascendancy over papa said agnes is very great he professes humility and gratitude with truth perhaps i hope so 
but his position is really one of power and i fear he makes a hard use of his power i said he was a hound which at the moment was a great satisfaction to me at the time i speak of as the time when papa spoke to me pursued agnes he had told papa that he was going away that he was very sorry and unwilling to leave but that he had better prospects papa was very much depressed then and more bowed down by care than ever you or i have seen him but he seemed relieved by this expedient of the partnership though at the same time he seemed hurt by it and ashamed of it and how did you receive it agnes i did trotwood she replied what i hope was right feeling sure that it was necessary for papa's peace that the sacrifice should be made i entreated him to make it i said it would lighten the load of his life i hope it will and that it would give me increased opportunities of being his companion oh trotwood cried agnes putting her hands before her face as her tears started on it i almost feel as if i had been papa's enemy instead of his loving child for i know how he has altered in his devotion to me i know how he has narrowed the circle of his sympathies and duties in the concentration of his whole mind upon me i know what a multitude of things he has shut out for my sake and how his anxious thoughts of me have shadowed his life and weakened his strength and energy by turning them always upon one idea if i could ever set this right if i could ever work out his restoration as i have so innocently been the cause of his decline i had never before seen agnes cry i had seen tears in her eyes when i had brought new honours home from school and i had seen them there when i last spoke about her father and i had seen her turn her gentle head aside when we took leave of one another but i had never seen her grieve like this it made me so sorry that i could only say in a foolish helpless manner pray agnes don't don't my dear sister but agnes was too superior to me in character and purpose as i know well now whatever i might know or not know then to be long in need of my entreaties the beautiful calm manner which makes her so different in my remembrance from everybody else came back again as if a cloud had passed from a serene sky we are not likely to remain alone much longer said agnes and while i have an opportunity let me earnestly entreat you trotwood to be friendly to uriah don't repel him don't resent as i think you have a great disposition to do what may be uncongenial to you in him he may not deserve it for we know no certain ill of him in any case think first of papa and me agnes had no time to say more for the room door opened and mrs waterbrook who was a large lady or who wore a large dress i don't exactly know which for i don't know which was dress and which was lady came sailing in i had a dim recollection of having seen her at the theatre as if i had seen her in a pale magic lantern but she appeared to remember me perfectly and still to suspect me of being in a state of intoxication finding by degrees however that i was sober and i hope that i was a modest young gentleman mrs waterbrook softened towards me considerably and inquired firstly if i went much into the parks and secondly if i went much into society on my replying to both of these questions in the negative it occurred to me that i fell again in her good opinion but she concealed that gracefully and invited me to dinner next day i accepted the invitation and took my leave making a call on uriah in the office as i went out and leaving a card for him in his absence when i went to dinner the next day and on the street door being opened plunged into a vapour bath of haunch of mutton i divined that i was not the only guest for i immediately identified the ticket porter in disguise assisting the family servant and waiting at the foot of the staircase to carry up my name 
He looked to the best of his ability when he asked me for it confidentially, as if he had never seen me before. But well did I know him, and well did he know me. Conscience made cowards of us both. I found Mr. Waterbrook to be a middle-aged gentleman with a short throat and a good deal of shirt-collar, who only wanted a black nose to be the portrait of a pug-dog. He told me he was happy to have the honour of making my acquaintance, and when I had paid my homage to Mrs. Waterbrook, presented me with much ceremony to a very awful lady in a black velvet dress, with a great black velvet hat, whom I remember looking like a near relation of Hamlet's, say his aunt. Mrs. Henry Spiker was this lady's name, and her husband was there too, so cold a man that his head, instead of being grey, seemed to be sprinkled with hoar-frost. Immense deference was shown to the Henry Spikers, male and female, which Agnes told me was on account of Mr. Henry Spiker being solicitor to something or to somebody, I forget what or which, remotely connected with the treasury. I found Uriah Heep among the company, in a suit of black and in deep humility. He told me when I shook his hand with him that he was proud to be noticed by me, and that he really felt obliged to me for my condescension. I could have wished that he had been less obliged to me, for he hovered about me in his gratitude all the rest of the evening, and whenever I said a word to Agnes was sure with his shadowless eyes and cadaverous face to be looking gauntly down upon us from behind. There were other guests, all iced for the occasion, as it struck me, like the wine. But there was one who attracted my attention before he came in, on account of my hearing his name announced as Mr. Traddles. My mind flew back to Salem House, and could it be Tommy, I thought, who used to draw the skeletons? I looked for Mr. Traddles with unusual interest. He was a sober, steady-looking young man of retiring manners, with a comic head of hair, and eyes that were rather wide open, and he got into an obscure corner so soon that I had some difficulty in making him out. At length I had a good view of him, and either my vision deceived me, or he was the old unfortunate Tommy. I made my way to Mr. Waterbrook, and said that I believed I had the pleasure of seeing an old schoolfellow there. "'Indeed,' said Mr. Waterbrook, surprised, "'you are too young to have been at school with Mr. Henry Spiker.' "'Oh, I don't mean him,' I returned. "'I mean the gentleman named Traddles.' "'Ah, aye, aye, indeed,' said my host, with much diminished interest. "'Possibly.' "'If it's really the same person,' I said, glancing towards him. "'It was at a place called Salem House, where we were together. "'And he was an excellent fellow.' "'Ah, yes, Traddles is a good fellow,' returned my host, nodding his head with an air of toleration. "'Traddles is quite a good fellow.' "'Is a curious coincidence,' said I. "'It is, really,' returned my host. "'Quite a coincidence that Traddles should be here at all.' as Traddles was only invited this morning, when the place at the table, intended to be occupied by Mrs. Henry Spiker's brother, became vacant, in consequence of his indisposition. A very gentlemanly man, Mrs. Henry Spiker's brother, Mr. Copperfield. I murmured an assent which was full of feeling, considering that I knew nothing at all about him, and I inquired what Mr. Traddles was by profession. Traddles, returned Mr. Waterbrook, is a young man reading for the bar. Yes, he's quite a good fellow. Nobody's enemy but his own. Is he his own enemy? I said, sorry to hear this. Well, returned Mr. Waterbrook, pursing up his mouth and playing with his watch-chain in a comfortable, prosperous sort of way. I should say he was one of those men who stand in their own light. Yes, I should say he would never, for example, be worth five hundred pounds. Uh, Traddles was recommended to me by a professional friend. Oh, yes, yes, he has a kind of talent for drawing briefs and stating a case in writing, plainly. 
I am able to throw something in Traddles' way in the course of the year. Uh, something for him considerable. Oh, yes, yes. I was much impressed by the extremely comfortable and satisfied manner in which Mr. Waterbrook delivered himself of this little word, yes, every now and then. There was wonderful expression in it. It completely conveyed the idea of a man who had been born, not to say with a silver spoon, but with a scaling ladder, and had gone on mounting all the heights of life one after another, until now he looked from the top of the fortifications with the eye of a philosopher and patron on the people down in the trenches. My reflections on this theme were still in progress when dinner was announced. Uh, Mr. Waterbrook went down with Hamlet's aunt. Mr. Henry Spiker took Mrs. Waterbrook. Agnes, whom I should have liked to take myself, was given to a simpering fellow with weak legs. Uriah, Traddles and I, as the junior part of the company, went down last how we could. I was not so vexed with losing Agnes as I might have been, since it gave me an opportunity of making myself known to Traddles on the stairs, who greeted me with great fervour while uriah writhed with such obtrusive satisfaction and self-abasement that i could gladly have pitched him over the banisters traddles and i were separated at table being billeted in two remote corners he in the glare of a red velvet lady i in the gloom of hamlet's aunt the dinner was very long and the conversation was about the aristocracy and blood mrs waterbrook repeatedly told us that if she had a weakness it was blood it occurred to me several times that we should have got on better if we had not been quite so genteel. We were so exceedingly genteel that our scope was very limited. And Mr. and Mrs. Gulpidge were of the party, who had something to do at second hand, at least Mr. Gulpidge had, with the law business of the bank, and what with the bank and what with the treasury, we were as exclusive as the court circular. To mend the matter, Hamlet's aunt had the family failing of indulging in soliloquy and held forth in a desultory manner by herself on every topic that was introduced. These were few enough, to be sure, but as we always fell back upon blood, she had as wild a field for abstract speculation as her nephew himself. We might have been a party of ogres, the conversation assumed such a sanguine complexion. "'I confess I am of Mrs. Waterbrook's opinion,' said Mr. Waterbrook, with a glass of wine at his eye. "'Other things are very well in their way, but give me blood.' Oh. "'There is nothing,' observed Hamlet's aunt, "'so satisfactory to one. "'There is nothing that is so much one's beau ideal of, "'of all that sort of thing, speaking generally. "'There are some low minds, not many I am happy to believe, "'but there are some, that would prefer to do what I should call "'bow down before idols, positively idols, "'before service, intellect, and so on. "'But these are intangible points. "'Blood is not so.' We see blood in a nose, and we know it. We see it in a chin, and we say, There it is, that's blood. It is an actual matter of fact. We point it out. It admits of no doubt. The simpering fellow with the weak legs, who had taken Agnes down, stated the question more decisively yet, I thought. Oh, you know, just take it, said this gentleman, looking round the board with an imbecile smile. We can't forego blood, you know. We must have blood, you know. Some young fellows, you know, may be a little behind their station, perhaps, in point of education and behaviour, and may go a little wrong, you know, and get themselves and other people into a variety of fixes and all that, but just take it. It's delightful to reflect that they've got blood in them. Myself, I'd rather at any time be knocked down by a man who had got blood in them than I'd be picked up by a man who hadn't. This sentiment, as compressing the general question into a nutshell, gave the utmost satisfaction, and brought the gentleman into great notice until the ladies retired. 
After that I observed that Mr. Gulpidge and Mr. Henry Spiker, who had hitherto been very distant, entered into a defensive alliance against us, the common enemy, and exchanged a mysterious dialogue across the table for our defeat and overthrow. Uh, that affair of the first bond for four thousand five hundred pounds has not taken the course that was expected, Spiker," said Mr. Gulpidge. "Do you mean the D of A's?" said Mr. Spiker. "The C of B's," said Mr. Gulpidge. Mr. Spiker raised his eyebrows and looked much concerned. "When the question was referred to Lord, uh, I needn't name him," said Mr. Gulpidge, checking himself. "I understand," said Mr. Spiker. "N." Mr. Gulpidge darkly nodded. Uh, was referred to him. His answer was, money or no release. Lord bless my soul, cried Mr. Spiker. Money or no release, repeated Mr. Gulpidge firmly. The next in reversion. You understand me? K, said Mr. Spiker with anonymous look. K, then positively refused to sign. He was attended at Newmarket for that purpose, and he point-blank refused to do it. Mr. Spiker was so interested that he became quite stony. "'So the matter rests at this hour,' said Mr. Gulpidge, throwing himself back in his chair. "'Our friend Waterbrook will excuse me if I forbear to explain myself generally on account of the magnitude of the interests involved.' Mr. Waterbrook was only too happy, as it appeared to me, to have such interests and such names even hinted at across his table. He assumed an expression of gloomy intelligence, though I am persuaded that he knew no more about the discussion than I did, and highly approved of the discretion that had been observed. Mr. Spiker, after the receipt of such a confidence, naturally desired to favour his friend with a confidence of his own. Therefore the foregoing dialogue was succeeded by another, in which it was Mr. Gulpidge's turn to be surprised, and that by another in which the surprise came round to Mr. Spiker's turn again, and so on, turn and turn about all this time we the outsiders remained oppressed by the tremendous interests involved in the conversation and our host regarded us with pride as the victims of a salutary awe and astonishment i was very glad indeed to get upstairs to agnes and to talk with her in a corner and to introduce traddles to her who was shy but agreeable and the same good-natured creature still as he was obliged to leave early on account of going away next morning for a month I had not nearly so much conversation with him as I could have wished, but we exchanged addresses and promised ourselves the pleasure of another meeting when he should come back into town. He was greatly interested to hear that I knew Steerforth, and spoke of him with such warmth that I made him tell Agnes what he thought of him. But Agnes only looked at me the while, and very slightly shook her head when only I observed her. As she was not among people with whom I believed she could be very much at home, I was almost glad to hear that she was going away within a few days, though I was sorry at the prospect of parting from her again so soon. This caused me to remain until all the company were gone. Conversing with her and hearing her sing was such a delightful reminder to me of my happy life in the grave old house she had made so beautiful, that I could have remained there half the night, but having no excuse for staying any longer, when the lights of Mr. Waterbrook's society were all snuffed out. I took my leave very much against my inclination. I then felt more than ever that she was my better angel, and if I thought of her sweet face and placid smile as though they had shone on me from some removed being like an angel, I hope I thought no harm. I have said that the company were all gone, but I ought to have accepted Uriah, whom I don't include in that denomination, and who would never cease to hover near us. 
he was close behind me when I went downstairs, he was close behind me when I walked away from the house, slowly fitting his long, skeleton fingers into the still longer fingers of a great Guy Fawkes pair of gloves. It was in no disposition for Uriah's company, but in remembrance of the entreaty Agnes had made to me, that I asked him if he would like to come home to my rooms and have some coffee. "'A really, Master Copperfield?' he rejoined. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Copperfield, but the other comes so natural. I don't like that you should put a constraint upon yourself to ask a humble person like me to your house.' "'There's no constraint in the case,' I said. "'Will you come?' "'I should like to very much,' replied Uriah, with a writhe. "'Well, then, come along,' said I. I could not help being rather short with him, but he appeared not to mind it. We went the nearest way without conversing much upon the road, and he was so humble in respect of those scarecrow gloves that he was still putting them on, and seemed to have made no advance in that labour when we got to my place. I led him up the dark stairs, to prevent his knocking his head against anything, and really his damp cold hand felt so like a frog in mine that I was tempted to drop it and run away. Agnes and hospitality prevailed, however, and I conducted him to my fireside. When I lighted my candles he fell into meek transports with the room that was revealed to him, and when I heated the coffee in an unassuming block-tin vessel in which Mrs. Crupp delighted to prepare it, chiefly, I believe, because it was not intended for the purpose, being a shaving-pot, and because there was a patent invention of great price mouldering away in the pantry, he professed so much emotion that I could joyfully have scalded him. "'Oh, really, Master Copperfield—I mean Mr. Copperfield,' said Uriah, "'to see you waiting upon me is what I never could have expected. But one way and another, so many things happened to me which I never could have expected, I am sure, in my humble station, and it seems to rain blessings on my head. You have heard something, I dare say, of a change in my expectations, Master Copperfield—I should say Mr. Copperfield.' As he sat on my sofa, with his long knees drawn up under his coffee-cup, and his hat and gloves upon the ground close to him, his spoon going softly round and round, his shadowless red eyes, which looked as if they had scorched their lashes off, turned towards me without looking at me, the disagreeable dints I have formerly described in his nostrils coming and going with his breath, and a snaky undulation pervading his frame from his chin to his boots. I decided in my own mind that I disliked him intensely. It made me very uncomfortable to have him for a guest, for I was young then, and unused to disguise what I so strongly felt. "'You have heard something, I dare say, of a change in my expectations, Master Copperfield—I should say Mr. Copperfield,' observed Uriah. "'Yes,' I said. "'Something.' "'Ah!' "'I thought Miss Agnes would know of it,' he quietly returned. "'I'm glad to find Miss Agnes knows of it. "'Oh, thank you, Master, Mr. Copperfield.' "'I could have thrown my boot-jack at him. "'It lay ready on the rug, "'for having entrapped me into the disclosure of anything concerning Agnes, however immaterial. "'But I only drank my coffee. "'What a prophet you have shown yourself to be, Master Copperfield!' pursued Uriah. Dear me, what a prophet you have proved yourself to be! Don't you remember saying to me once that perhaps I should be a partner in Mr. Wickfield's business, and perhaps it might be Wickfield and Heap? You may not recollect it, but when a person is humble, Master Copperfield, a person treasures such things up. I recollect talking about it, said I, though I certainly did not think it very likely then. "'Oh, who would have thought it likely, Mr. Copperfield?' returned Uriah enthusiastically. "'I'm sure I didn't myself. I recollect saying with my own lips that I was much too humble. 
so I considered myself really and truly. He sat with that carved grin on his face looking at the fire as I looked at him. But the humblest persons, Master Copperfield, he presently resumed, may be the instruments of good. I am glad to think I have been an instrument of good to Mr. Wickfield, and that I may be more so. Oh, what a worthy man he is, Mr. Copperfield, but how imprudent he has been. I am sorry to hear it, said I. I could not help adding rather pointedly, on all accounts. Decidedly so, Mr. Copperfield, replied Uriah, on all accounts. Miss Agnes, above all. You don't remember your own eloquent expressions, Master Copperfield, but I remember how you said one day that everybody must admire her, and how I thanked you for it. You forgot that, I have no doubt, Master Copperfield. No, I said dryly. Oh, how glad I am you have not, exclaimed Uriah, to think that you should be the first to kindle the sparks of ambition in my humble breast, and that you have not forgot it. Oh! Would you excuse me for asking for a cup more coffee? Something in the emphasis he laid upon the kindling of those sparks, and something in the glance he directed at me as he said it, had made me start as if I had seen him illuminated by a blaze of light. Recalled by his request, preferred to be in quite another tone of voice, I did the honours of the shaving-pot, but I did them with an unsteadiness of hand, a sudden sense of being no match for him, and a perplexed suspicious anxiety as to what he might be going to say next, which I felt could not escape his observation. He said nothing at all. He stirred his coffee round and round, he sipped it, he felt his chin softly with his grisly hand, he looked at the fire, he looked about the room, he gasped rather than smiled at me, he writhed and undulated about in his deferential servility, he stirred and sipped again, but he left the renewal of the conversation to me. So, Mr. Wickfield, I said at last, who is worth five hundred of you, or me? For my life, I think, I could not have helped dividing that part of the sentence with an awkward jerk. Has been imprudent, has he, Mr. Heap? Oh, very imprudent indeed, Master Copperfield, returned Uriah, sighing modestly. Oh, very much so. But I wish you'd call me Uriah, if you please. It's like old times. Well, Uriah, said I, bolting it out with some difficulty. Oh, thank you he returned with fervour. Thank you, Master Copperfield. It's like the blowing of old breezes or the ringing of old bells is to hear you say your liar. I beg your pardon. Was I making any observation? About Mr. Wickfield, I suggested. Oh, yes, truly, said Uriah. Ah, great imprudence, Master Copperfield. It's a topic that I wouldn't touch upon to any soul but you. Even to you I can only touch upon it and no more. If anyone else had been in my place during the last few years, by this time he would have had Mr. Wickfield, oh, what a worthy man he is, Master Copperfield, too, under his thumb, under his thumb, said Uriah very slowly as he stretched out his cruel-looking hand above my table and pressed his own thumb upon it until it shook and shook the room. If I had been obliged to look at him, with him splayfoot on Mr. Wickfield's head, I think I could scarcely have hated him more. "'Oh, dear, yes, Master Copperfield,' he proceeded in a soft voice, most remarkably contrasting with the action of his thumb, which did not diminish its hard pressure in the least degree. There's no doubt of it. And there would have been loss, disgrace, and I don't know what at all. Mr. Wickfield knows it. I am the humble instrument of humbly serving him 
and he puts me on an eminence I could hardly have hoped to reach. How thankful should I be! With his face turned towards me as he finished, but without looking at me, he took his crooked thumb off the spot where he had planted it, and slowly and thoughtfully scraped his lank jaw with it, as if he were shaving himself. I recollect well how indignantly my heart beat as I saw his crafty face, with the appropriately red light of the fire upon it, preparing for something else. "'Master Copperfield,' he began, "'but I am keeping you up.' "'You are not keeping me up. I generally go to bed late.' "'Thank you, Master Copperfield. I have risen from my ambush station since you first used to address me, it is true, but I am ambush still. I hope I shall never be otherwise than ambush. You will not think the worst of my humbleness if I make a little confidence to you, Master Copperfield, will you? Oh, no, said I with an effort. Thank you. He took out his pocket-handkerchief and began wiping the palms of his hands. Uh, Miss Agnes, Master Copperfield. Well, Uriah? Oh, how pleasant to be called Uriah spontaneously! He cried and gave himself a jerk like a convulsive fish. You thought her looking very beautiful tonight, Master Copperfield? i thought her looking as she always does superior in all respects to everyone around her i returned oh thank you it's so true he cried oh thank you so much for that not at all i said loftily there's no reason why you should thank me why that master copperfield said uriah is in fact the confidence that i'm going to take the liberty of reposing humble as i am he wiped his hands harder looked at them and at the fire by turns humble as my mother is and lowly as our poor but honest roof has ever been the image of miss agnes i don't mind trusting you with my secret master copperfield for i have always overflowed towards you since the first moment i had the pleasure of beholding you in a pony shay has been in my breast for years oh master copperfield with what a pure affection do i love the ground my agnes walks on i believe i had a delirious idea of seizing the red-hot poker out of the fire and running him through at it it went from me with a shock like a ball fired from a rifle but the image of agnes outraged by so much as a thought of this red-headed animals remained in my mind when i looked at him sitting all awry as if his mean soul gripped his body and made me giddy he seemed to swell and grow before my eyes, the room seemed full of the echoes of his voice, and the strange feeling, to which perhaps no one is quite a stranger, that all this had occurred before, at some indefinite time, and that I knew what he was going to say next, took possession of me. A timely observation of the sense of power that there was in his face did more to bring back to my remembrance the entreaty of Agnes, in its full force, than any effort I could have made. I asked him, with a better appearance of composure than I could have thought possible a minute before, whether he had made his feelings known to Agnes. "'Oh, no, Master Copperfield,' he returned. "'Oh, dear, no, not to any one but you. You see, I am only just emerging from my lowly station. I rest a good deal of hope on her observing how useful I am to her father, for I trust to be very useful to him indeed, Master Copperfield, and how I smooth the way for him and keep him straight.' She's so much attached to her father, Master Copperfield. Oh, what a lovely thing it is in a daughter, that I think she may come, on his account, to be kind to me. I fathomed the depth of the rascal's whole scheme, and understood why he laid it bare. 
if you have the goodness to keep my secret master copperfield he pursued and not in general to go against me i shall take it as a particular favour you wouldn't wish to make unpleasantness i know what a friendly art you've got but having only known me on my humble footing on my humblest i should say for i am very humble still you might unbeknown go against me rather with my agnes i call her mine you see master copperfield there's a song that says i'd crowns resign to call them mine i hope i do it one of these days dear agnes so much too loving and too good for any one that i could think of was it possible that she was reserved to be the wife of such a wretch as this there's no hurry at present you know master copperfield uriah proceeded in a slimy way as i sat gazing at him with this thought in my mind my agnes is very young still and mother and me will have to work our way upwards and make a good many new arrangements before it will be quite convenient so i shall have time gradually to make her familiar with my hopes as opportunities offer oh i'm so much obliged to you for this confidence it's such a relief you can't think to know that you understand our situation and are certain as you wouldn't wish to make unpleasantness in the family not to go against me he took the hand which i dared not withhold and having given it a damp squeeze referred to his pale-faced watch dear me he said it's past one the moments slip away so in the confidence of old times master copperfield that it's almost half past one i answered that i had thought it was later not that i had really thought so but because my conversational powers were effectually scattered dear me he said considering the house that i'm stopping at a sort of private hotel and boarding-house master copperfield near the new river ed will have gone to bed these two hours i am sorry i returned that there's only one bed here and that i oh don't think of mentioning beds master copperfield he rejoined ecstatically drawing up one leg but would you have any objections to my laying down before the fire if it comes to that i said pray take the bed and i'll lie down by the fire his repudiation of this offer was almost shrill enough in the excess of its surprise and humility to have penetrated to the ears of mrs crupp then sleeping i suppose in a distant chamber situated at about the level of low water mark soothing her slumbers by the ticking of an incorrigible clock to which she always referred me when we had any little difference on the score of punctuality and which was never less than three-quarters of an hour too slow which had always been put right in the morning by the best authorities as no arguments i could urge in my bewildered condition had the least effect upon his modesty in inducing him to accept my bedroom i was obliged to make the best arrangements i could for his repose before the fire the mattress of the sofa which was a great deal too short for his lank figure the sofa pillows the blanket the table cover a clean breakfast cloth and a great coat made him a bed and covering for which he was more than thankful having lent him a nightcap which he put on at once and in which he made such an awful figure that i have never worn one since i left him to his rest i shall never forget that night i shall never forget how i turned and tumbled how i wearied myself with thinking about agnes and this creature how i considered what i could do and what i ought to do how i could come to no other conclusion that the best course for her peace was to do nothing and to keep to myself what i had heard if i went to sleep for a few moments the image of agnes with her tender eyes and of her father looking fondly on her as i had often seen him look arose before me with appealing faces 
and filled me with vague terrors. When I awoke the recollection that Uriah was lying in the next room sat heavy on me like a waking nightmare, and oppressed me with a leaden dread, as if I had some meaner quality of devil for a lodger. The poker got into my dozing thoughts besides, and wouldn't come out. I thought between sleeping and waking that it was still red-hot, and I had snatched it out of the fire and run him through the body. I was so haunted at last by the idea, though I knew there was nothing in it, that I stole into the next room to look at him. There I saw him lying on his back with his legs extending to I don't know where, gurglings taking place in his throat, stoppages in his nose, and his mouth open like a post-office. He was so much worse in reality than in my distempered fancy, that afterwards I was attracted to him in very repulsion, and I could not help wandering in and out every half-hour or so, and taking another look at him. Still the long, long night seemed heavy and hopeless as ever and no promise of day was in the murky sky. When I saw him going downstairs early in the morning, for thank heaven he would not stay to breakfast, it appeared to me as if the night was going away in his person. When I went out to the commons I charged Mrs. Crupp with particular directions to leave the windows open, that my sitting-room might be aired and purged of his presence. End of chapter 25「Chapter twenty six of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty six. I fall into captivity. I saw no more of Uriah Heep until the day when Agnes left town. I was at the coach office to take leave of her and see her go, and there was he returning to Canterbury by the same conveyance. It was some small satisfaction to me to observe his spare, short-waisted, high-shouldered, mulberry-coloured greatcoat, perched up in company with an umbrella like a small tent on the edge of the back seat on the roof, while Agnes was, of course, inside. But what I underwent in my efforts to be friendly with him, while Agnes looked on, perhaps deserved that little recompense. At the coach-window, as at the dinner-party, he hovered about us without a moment's intermission, like a great vulture, gorging himself on every syllable that I said to Agnes or Agnes said to me. In the state of trouble into which his disclosure by the fire had thrown me, I had thought very much of the words Agnes had used in reference to the partnership. I did what I hoped was right feeling sure that it was necessary for papa's peace that a sacrifice should be made, I entreated him to make it. A miserable foreboding that she would yield to and sustain herself by the same feeling in reference to any sacrifice for his sake had oppressed me ever since. I knew how she loved him, I knew what the devotion of her nature was, I knew from her own lips that she regarded herself as the innocent cause of his errors, and as owing him a great debt she ardently desired to pay. I had no consolation in seeing how different she was from this detestable Rufus with a mulberry-coloured greatcoat, for I felt that in the very difference between them, in the self-denial of her pure soul and the sordid baseness of his, the greatest danger lay. All this, doubtless, he knew thoroughly and had in his cunning considered well. Yet I was so certain that the prospect of such a sacrifice afar off must destroy the happiness of Agnes, and I was so sure from her manner of its being unseen by her then, and having cast no shadow on her yet, 
that I could as soon have injured her as given her any warning of what impended. Thus it was that we parted without explanation, she waving her hand and smiling farewell from the coach-window, her evil genius writhing on the roof, as if he had her in his clutches, and triumphed. I could not get over this farewell glimpse of them for a long time. When Agnes wrote to tell me of her safe arrival, I was as miserable as when I saw her going away. Whenever I fell into a thoughtful state, this subject was sure to present itself, and all my uneasiness was sure to be redoubled. Hardly a night passed without my dreaming of it. It became a part of my life, and as inseparable from my life as my own head. I had ample leisure to refine upon my uneasiness, for Steerforth was at Oxford as he wrote to me, and when I was not at the Commons I was very much alone. I believe I had at this time some lurking distrust of Steerforth. I wrote to him most affectionately in reply to his, but I think I was glad upon the whole that he could not come to London just then. I suspect the truth to be that the influence of Agnes was upon me, undisturbed by the sight of him, and that it was the more powerful with me, because she had so large a share in my thoughts and interest. In the meantime, days and weeks slipped by. I was articled to Spenlow and Jorkins. I had ninety pounds a year, exclusive of my house-rent and sundry collateral matters, from my aunt. My rooms were engaged for twelve months certain, and though I still found them dreary of an evening, and the evenings long, I could settle down into a state of equable low spirits, and resign myself to coffee, which I seem on looking back to have taken by the gallon at about this period of my existence. At about this time, too, I made three discoveries. First, that Mrs. Crupp was a martyr to a curious disorder called the spasms, which was generally accompanied with inflammation of the nose, and required to be constantly treated with peppermint. Secondly, that something peculiar in the temperature of my pantry made the brandy bottles burst. Thirdly, that I was alone in the world, and much given to record that circumstance in fragments of English versification. On the day when I was articled, no festivity took place, beyond my having sandwiches and sherry into the office for the clerks, and going alone to the theatre at night. I went to see The Stranger as a doctor's common sort of play, and was so dreadfully cut up that I hardly knew myself in my own glass when I got home. Mr. Spenlow remarked on this occasion, when we concluded our business, that he should have been happy to have seen me at his house at Norwood to celebrate our becoming connected, but for his domestic arrangements being in some disorder, on account of the expected return of his daughter from finishing her education at Paris. But he intimated that when she came home he should hope to have the pleasure of entertaining me. I knew that he was a widower with one daughter, and expressed my acknowledgments. Mr. Spenlow was as good as his word. In a week or two he referred to this engagement, and said that if I would do him the favour to come down next Saturday, and stay till Monday, he would be extremely happy. Of course I said I would do him the favour, and he was to drive me down in his phaeton, and to bring me back. When the day arrived, my very carpet-bag was an object of veneration to the stipendary clerks, to whom the house at Norwood was a sacred mystery. One of them informed me that he had heard that Mr. Spenlow ate entirely off plate and china, and another hinted at champagne being constantly on draught, after the usual custom of table-beer. The old clerk in the wig, whose name was Mr. Tiffey, had been down on business several times in the course of his career, and had on each occasion penetrated to the breakfast parlour. He described it as an apartment of the most sumptuous nature, and said that he had drunk brown East India sherry there, of a quality so precious as to make a man wink. 
we had an adjourned case in the consistory that day about excommunicating a baker who had been objecting in a vestry to a paving rate and as the evidence was just twice the length of robinson crusoe according to a calculation i made it was rather late in the day before we finished however we got him excommunicated for six weeks and sentenced in no end of costs and then the baker's proctor and the judge and the advocates on both sides who were all nearly related went out of town together and mr spenlow and i drove away in the phaeton the phaeton was a very handsome affair the horses arched their necks and lifted up their legs as if they knew they belonged to doctors commons there was a good deal of competition in the commons on all points of display and it turned out some very choice equipages then though i always have considered and always shall consider that in my time the great article of competition there was starch which i think was worn among the proctors to as great an extent as it is in the nature of a man to bear we were very pleasant going down and mr spenlow gave me some hints in reference to my profession he said it was the genteelest profession in the world and must on no account be confounded with the profession of a solicitor being quite another sort of a thing infinitely more exclusive less mechanical and more profitable we took things much more easily in the commons than they could be taken anywhere else he observed and that set us as a privileged class apart he said it was impossible to conceal the disagreeable fact that we were chiefly employed by solicitors but he gave me to understand that they were an inferior race of men universally looked down upon by all proctors of any pretensions i asked mr spenlow what he considered the best sort of professional business he replied that a good case of a disputed will where there was a neat little estate of thirty or forty thousand pounds was perhaps the best of all in such a case he said not only were there very pretty pickings in the way of arguments at every stage of the proceedings and mountains upon mountains of evidence on interrogatory and counter-interrogatory to say nothing of an appeal lying first to the delegates and then to the lords but the costs being pretty sure to come out of the estate at last both sides went at it in a lively and spirited manner and expense was no consideration then he launched into a general eulogium on the commons what was to be particularly admired he said in the commons was its compactness it was the most conveniently organized place in the world it was the complete idea of snugness it lay in a nutshell for example you brought a divorce case or a restitution case to the consistory very good you tried it in the consistory you made a quiet little round game of it among a family group and you played it out at leisure suppose you were not satisfied with the consistory what did you do then why you went into the arches what was the arches the same court in the same room with the same bar and the same practitioners but another judge for there the consistory judge could plead any court day as an advocate well you played your round game out again still you were not satisfied very good what do you do then why you went to the delegates who were the delegates why the ecclesiastical delegates were the advocates without any business who looked on at the round game when it was playing in both courts and had seen the cards shuffled and cut and played and had talked to all the players about it and now came fresh as judges to settle the matter to the satisfaction of everybody discontented people might talk of corruption in the commons closeness in the commons and the necessity of reforming the commons said mr spenlow solemnly in conclusion but when the price of wheat per bushel had been highest the commons had been busiest and a man might lay his hand upon his heart and say to the whole world touch the commons and down comes the country
I listened to all this with attention, and though I must say I had my doubts whether the country was quite as much obliged to the Commons as Mr. Spenlow made out, I respectfully deferred to his opinion. That about the price of wheat per bushel I modestly felt was too much for my strength, and quite settled the question. I have never, to this hour, got the better of that bushel of wheat. It has reappeared to annihilate me all through my life, in connection with all kinds of subjects. I don't know now exactly what it has to do with me, or what right it has to crush me on an infinite variety of occasions, but whenever I see my old friend the bushel brought in by the head and shoulders, as he always is, I observe, I give up a subject for lost. This is a digression. I was not the man to touch the commons and bring down the country. I submissively expressed by my silence my acquiescence in all that I heard from my superior in years and knowledge, and we talked about the stranger and the drama and the pairs of horses until we came to Mr. Spenlow's gate. There was a lovely garden to Mr. Spenlow's house, and though that was not the best time of year for seeing a garden, it was so beautifully kept that I was quite enchanted there was a charming lawn there were clusters of trees and there were perspective walks that i could just distinguish in the dark arched over with trellis-work on which shrubs and flowers grew in the growing season here miss spenlow walks by herself i thought oh, dear me we went into the house which was cheerfully lighted up and into a hall where there were all sorts of hats caps greatcoats plaids gloves whips and walking-sticks where is miss dora said mr spenlow to the servant dora i thought what a beautiful name we turned into a room near at hand i think it was the identical breakfast-room made memorable by the brown east india sherry and i heard a voice say mr copperfield my daughter dora and my daughter dora's confidential friend it was no doubt mr spenlow's voice but i didn't know it and i didn't care whose it was all was over in a moment I had fulfilled my destiny. I was a captive and a slave. I loved Dora Spenlow to distraction. She was more than human to me. She was a fairy, a sylph, I don't know what she was, anything that no one ever saw and everything that everybody ever wanted. I was swallowed up in an abyss of love in an instant. There was no pausing on the brink, no looking down or looking back. I was gone headlong before I had sense to say a word to her. I observed a well-remembered voice when I had bowed down and murmured something, have seen Mr. Copperfield before. The speaker was not Dora, no, the confidential friend, Miss Murdstone. I don't think I was much astonished. To the best of my judgment, no capacity of astonishment was left in me. There was nothing worth mentioning in the material world but Dora Spenlow to be astonished about. I said, How do you do, Miss Murdstone? I hope you are well. She answered, very well. I said, How is Mr. Murdstone? She replied, My brother is robust. I am obliged to you. Mr. Spenlow, who I suppose had been surprised to see us recognize each other, then put in his word. I am glad to find, he said, Copperfield, that you and Miss Murdstone are already acquainted. Mr. Copperfield and myself, said Miss Murdstone with severe composure, are connections. We were once slightly acquainted. It was in his childish days. Circumstances have separated us since. I should not have known him. I replied that I should have known her anywhere, which was true enough. Miss Murdstone has had the goodness, said Mr. Spenlow to me, to accept the office, if I may so describe it, of my daughter Dora's confidential friend. My daughter Dora having unhappily no mother, Miss Murdstone is obliging enough to become her companion and protector. 
a passing thought occurred to me that miss murdstone like the pocket instrument called a life preserver was not so much designed for purposes of protection as of assault but as i had none but passing thoughts for any subject save dora i glanced at her directly afterwards and was thinking that i saw in her prettily pettish manner that she was not very much inclined to be particularly confidential to her companion and protector when a bell rang which mr spenlow said was the first dinner bell and so carried me off to dress the idea of dressing oneself for doing anything in the way of action in that state of love was a little too ridiculous i could only sit down before my fire biting the key of my carpet-bag and think of the captivating girlish bright-eyed lovely dora what a form she had what a face she had what a graceful variable enchanting manner the bell rang again so soon that i made a mere scramble of my dressing instead of the careful operation i could have wished under the circumstances and went downstairs there was some company dora was talking to an old gentleman with a grey head grey as he was and a great-grandfather into the bargain for he said so i was madly jealous of him what a state of mind i was in i was jealous of everybody i couldn't bear the idea of anybody knowing mr spenlow better than i did it was torturing to me to hear them talk of occurrences in which i had had no share when a most amiable person with a highly polished bald head asked me across the dinner-table if that were the first occasion of my seeing the grounds i could have done anything to him that was savage and revengeful i don't remember who was there except dora i have not the least idea what we had for dinner besides dora my impression is that i dined off dora entirely i sent away half a dozen plates untouched i sat next to dora i talked to her she had the most delightful little voice the gayest little laugh the pleasantest and most fascinating little ways that ever led a lost youth into hopeless slavery she was rather diminutive altogether so much the more precious i thought when she went out of the room with Miss Murdstone, no other ladies were of the party, I fell into a reverie, only disturbed by the cruel apprehension that Miss Murdstone would disparage me to her. The amiable creature with the polished head told me a long story, which I think was about gardening. I think I heard him say, my gardener, several times. I seemed to pay the deepest attention to him, but I was wandering in a garden of Eden all the while with Dora my apprehensions of being disparaged to the object of my engrossing affection were revived when we went into the drawing-room by the grim and distant aspects of miss murdstone but i was relieved of them in an unexpected manner david copperfield said miss murdstone beckoning me aside into a window a word i confronted miss murdstone alone david copperfield said miss murdstone i need not enlarge upon family circumstances they are not a tempting subject far from it ma'am i returned far from it assented miss murdstone i do not wish to revive the memory of past differences or of past outrages i have received outrages from a person a female i am sorry to say for the credit of my sex who is not to be mentioned without scorn and disgust and therefore i would rather not mention her i felt very fiery on my aunt's account but i said it would certainly be better if miss murdstone pleased not to mention her i could not hear her disrespectfully mentioned i added without expressing my opinion in a decided tone miss murdstone shut her eyes and disdainfully inclined her head then slowly opening her eyes resumed david copperfield i shall not attempt to disguise the fact that i formed an unfavourable opinion of you in your childhood 
It may have been a mistaken one, or you may have ceased to justify it. That is not in question between us now. I belong to a family remarkable, I believe, for some firmness, and I am not the creature of circumstance or change. I may have my opinion of you, and you may have your opinion of me. I inclined my head in turn. But it is not necessary, said Miss Murdstone, that these opinions should come into collision here, under existing circumstances. It is as well on all accounts that they should not. As the chances of life have brought us together again, and may bring us together on other occasions, I would say, let us meet here as distant acquaintances. Family circumstances are a sufficient reason for our only meeting on that footing, and it is quite unnecessary that either of us should make the other the subject of remark. Do you approve of this? Miss Murdstone, I returned, I think you and Mr. Murdstone used me very cruelly, and treated my mother with great unkindness. I shall always think so, as long as I live. But I quite agree in what you propose. Miss Murdstone shut her eyes again and bent her head. Then, just touching the back of my hand with the tips of her cold, stiff fingers, she walked away, arranging the little fetters on her wrist and round her neck, which seemed to be the same set in exactly the same state as when I had seen her last. These reminded me, in reference to Miss Murdstone's nature, of the fetters over a jail door, suggesting on the outside to all beholders what was to be expected within. All I know of the rest of the evening is that I heard the Empress of my heart sing enchanted ballads in the French language, generally to the effect that, whatever was the matter, we ought always to dance, tarala, tarala, accompanying herself on a glorified instrument resembling a guitar, that I was lost in blissful delirium, that I refused refreshment, that my soul recoiled from punch particularly, that when Miss Murdstone took her into custody and led her away, she smiled and gave me her delicious hand, that I caught a view of myself in a mirror looking perfectly imbecile and idiotic, that I retired to bed in a most maudlin state of mind, and got up in a crisis of feeble infatuation. It was a fine morning and early, and I thought I would go and take a stroll down one of those wire-arched walks, and indulge my passion by dwelling on her image. On my way through the hall I encountered her little dog, who was called Jip, short for Gypsy. I approached him tenderly, for I loved even him, but he showed me his whole set of teeth, and got under a chair expressly to snarl and wouldn't hear of the least familiarity. The garden was cool and solitary. I walked about, wondering what my feelings of happiness would be if I could ever become engaged to this dear wonder. As to marriage and fortune and all that, I believe I was almost as innocently undesigning then as when I loved little Emily. To be allowed to call her Dora, to write to her, to dote upon and worship her, to have reason to think that when she was with other people she was yet mindful of me, seemed to me the summit of human ambition. I'm sure it was the summit of mine. There is no doubt whatever that I was a lackadaisical young spoony, but there was a purity of heart in all this that prevents my having quite a contemptuous recollection of it. Let me laugh as I may. I had not been walking long when I turned a corner and met her. I tingle again from head to foot as my recollection turns that corner, and my pen shakes in my hand. "'You are out early, Miss Spenlow,' said I. "'It's so stupid at home.' she replied, and Miss Murdstone is so absurd. She talks such nonsense about its being necessary for the day to be aired before I came out. Aired? She laughed here in a most melodious manner. On a Sunday morning when I don't practice I must do something. So I told Papa last night I must come out. Besides, it's the brightest time of the whole day. Don't you think so? 
I hazarded a bold flight, and said, not without stammering, that it was very bright to me then, though it had been very dark to me a minute before. "'Do you mean a compliment?' said Dora, or that the weather has really changed. I stammered worse than before, in replying that I meant no compliment, but the plain truth, though I was not aware of any change having taken place in the weather. It was in the state of my own feelings, I added bashfully, to clench the explanation. I never saw such curls. How could I, for there never were such curls as those she shook out to hide her blushes. As to the straw hat and blue ribbons which was on the top of the curls, if I could only have hung it up in my room in Buckingham Street, what a priceless possession it would have been. "'You have just come home from Paris,' said I. "'Yes,' said she. "'Have you ever been there?' "'No.' "'Oh, I hope you'll go soon. You would like it so much.' Traces of deep-seated anguish appeared in my countenance. That she should hope I would go, that she should think it possible I could go, was insupportable. I depreciated Paris, I depreciated France. I said I wouldn't leave England, under existing circumstances, for any earthly consideration. Nothing should induce me. In short, she was shaking the curls again when the little dog came running along the walk to our relief. He was mortally jealous of me, and persisted in barking at me. She took him up in her arms. Oh, my goodness! And caressed him. But he persisted upon barking still. He wouldn't let me touch him when I tried, and then she beat him. It increased my sufferings greatly to see the little pats she gave for punishment on the bridge of his blunt nose, while he winked his eyes and licked her hand, and still growled within himself, like a little double bass. At length he was quiet, well he might be with her dimpled chin upon his head, and we walked away to look at a greenhouse. You are not very intimate with Miss Murdstone, are you? said Dora, my pet. The last two words were to the dog. Oh, if they had only been to me! No, I replied, not so at all. She is a tiresome creature, said Dora, pouting. I can't think what papa can have been about when he chose such a vexatious thing to be my companion. Who wants a protector? I am sure I don't want a protector. Jip can protect me a great deal better than Miss Murdstone. Can't you, Jip, dear? He only winked lazily when she kissed his ball of a head. "'Papa calls her my confidential friend, but I am sure she is no such thing, is she, Jip? We are not going to confide in any such cross people, Jip and I. We mean to bestow our confidence where we like, and to find out our own friends instead of having them found out for us, don't we, Jip?' Jip made a comfortable noise in answer, a little like a tea-kettle when it sings. As for me, every word was a new heap of fetters riveted above the last. It is very hard, because we have not a kind mamma, that we are then to have instead a sulky, gloomy old thing like Miss Murdstone, always following us about, isn't it, Jip? Never mind, Jip, we won't be confidential, and we'll make ourselves as happy as we can in spite of her, and we'll tease her and not please her, won't we, Jip? If it had lasted longer, I think I must have gone down on my knees on the gravel, with the probability before me of grazing them, and of being presently ejected from the premises besides. But by good fortune the greenhouse was not far off, and these words brought us to it. It contained quite a show of beautiful geraniums. We loitered long in front of them, and Dora often stopped to admire this one or that one, and I stopped to admire the same one, and Dora, laughing, held the dog up childishly to smell the flowers, and if we were not all three in fairyland, certainly I was. 
the scent of a geranium leaf to this day strikes me with a half comical half serious wonder as to what change was come over me in a moment and then i see a straw hat and blue ribbons and a quantity of curls and a little black dog being held up in two slender arms against a bank of blossoms and bright leaves miss murdstone had been looking for us she found us here and presented her uncongenial cheek the little wrinkles in it filled with hair powder to dora to be kissed then she took dora's arm in hers and marched us back to breakfast as if it were a soldier's funeral how many cups of tea i drank because dora made it i don't know but i perfectly remember that i sat swilling tea until my whole nervous system if i had had any in those days must have gone by the board by and by we went to church miss murdstone was between dora and me in the pew but i heard her sing and the congregation vanished a sermon was delivered about dora of course and i am afraid this is all i know of the service we had a quiet day no company a walk a family dinner of four and an evening of looking over books and pictures miss murdstone with a homily before her and her eye upon us keeping guard vigilantly ah little did mr spenlow imagine when he sat opposite to me after dinner that day with his pocket-handkerchief over his head how fervently i was embracing him in my fancy as his son-in-law little did he think when i took leave of him that night that he had just given his full consent to my being engaged to dora and that i was invoking blessings on his head we departed early in the morning for we had a salvage case coming on in the admiralty court requiring a rather accurate knowledge of the whole science of navigation in which as we couldn't be expected to know much about these matters in commons the judge had entreated two old trinity masters for charity's sake to come and help him out dora was at the breakfast-table to make the tea again however and i had the melancholy pleasure of taking off my hat to her in the phaeton as she stood on the doorstep with jip in her arms what the admiralty was to me that day what nonsense i made of our case in my mind as i listened to it how i saw dora engraved upon the blade of the silver oar which they laid upon the table as the emblem of that high jurisdiction and how i felt when mr spenlow went home without me i had had an insane hope that he might take me back again as if i were a mariner myself and the ship to which i belonged had sailed away and left me on a desert island i shall make no fruitless efforts to describe if that sleepy old court could rouse itself and present in any visible form the daydreams i have had in it about dora it would reveal my truth i don't mean the dreams that i dreamed on that day alone but day after day from week to week and term to term i went there not to attend what was going on but to think about dora if ever i bestowed a thought upon the cases as they dragged their slow length before me it was only to wonder in the matrimonial cases remembering dora how it was that married people could ever be otherwise than happy and in the prerogative cases to consider if the money in question had been left to me what were the foremost steps i should immediately have taken in regard to dora within the first week of my passion i bought four sumptuous waistcoats not for myself i had no pride in them for dora and took to wearing straw-coloured kid gloves in the streets and laid the foundations of all the corns i have ever had if the boots i wore at that period could only be produced and compared with the natural size of my feet they would show what the state of my heart was in a most affecting manner and yet wretched cripple as i made myself by this act of homage to dora i walked miles upon miles daily in the hope of seeing her 
not only was i soon as well known on the norwood road as the postman on that beat but i pervaded london likewise i walked about the streets where the best shops for ladies were i haunted the bazaar like an unquiet spirit i fagged through the park again and again long after i was quite knocked up sometimes at long intervals on rare occasions i saw her perhaps i saw her glove waved in a carriage window perhaps i met her walked with her and miss murdstone a little way and spoke to her in the latter case i was always very miserable afterwards to think that i had said nothing to the purpose or that she had no idea of the extent of my devotion or that she cared nothing about me i was always looking out as may be supposed for another invitation to mr spenlow's house i was always being disappointed for i got none mrs crupp must have been a woman of penetration for when this attachment was but a few weeks old and i had not had the courage to write more explicitly even to agnes than that i had been to mr spenlow's house whose family i added consisted of one daughter i say mrs crupp must have been a woman of penetration for even in that early stage she found it out she came up to me one evening when i was very low to ask she being then afflicted with the disorder i have mentioned if i could oblige her with a little tincture of cardamoms mixed with rhubarb and flavoured with seven drops of the essence of cloves which was the very best remedy for her complaint or if i had not such a thing by me with a little brandy which was the next best it was not as she remarked so palatable to her but it was the next best as i had never even heard of the first remedy and always had the second in the closet i gave mrs crupp a glass of the second which that i might have no suspicion of its being devoted to any improper use she began to take in my presence cheer up sir said mrs crupp i can't bear to see you so sir i'm a mother myself i did not quite perceive the application of this fact to myself but i smiled on mrs crupp as benignly as was in my power come sir said mrs crupp excuse me i know what it is sir there's a lady in the case uh, mrs crupp i returned reddening oh bless you keep a good heart sir said mrs crupp nodding encouragement never say die sir if she don't smile upon you there's a many as will you are a young gentleman to be smiled on mr copperfull and you must learn your value sir mrs crupp always called me mr copperfull firstly no doubt because it was not my name and secondly i am inclined to think in some indistinct association with a washing day what makes you suppose there is any young lady in the case mrs crupp said i mr copperfull said mrs crupp with a great deal of feeling i'm a mother myself for some time mrs crupp could only lay her hand upon her nankeen bosom and fortify herself against returning pain with sips of her medicine at length she spoke again when the present set were took for you by your dear aunt mr copperfull said mrs crupp my remark were i had now found someone i could care for thank heaven were the expression i have now found someone i could care for you don't eat enough sir nor yet drink is that what you found your supposition on mrs crupp said i sir said mrs crupp in a tone approaching to severity i've long dressed of a young gentleman besides yourself a young gentleman may be over careful of himself or he may be under careful of himself he may brush his hair too regular or too unregular he may wear his boots too large for him or much too small that is according as the young gentleman has his original character formed but let him go to which extreme as he may sir there's a young lady in both of them mrs crupp shook her head in such a determined manner that i had not an inch of vantage ground left 
"'It was but the young gentleman which died here before yourself,' said Mrs. Crupp, "'that fell in love with a barmaid, and had his waistcoats took in directly, though much swelled by drinking.' "'Mrs. Crupp,' said I, "'I must beg you not to connect the young lady in my case with a barmaid, or anything of that sort, if you please.' Uh, "'Mr. Copperfull,' said Mrs. Crupp, "'I am a mother myself, and not likely. I ask your pardon, sir, if I intrude. I should never wish to intrude where I were not welcome. But you are a young gentleman, Mr. Copperfull, and my advice to you is to cheer up, sir, to keep a good heart, and to know your own value. If you was to take to something, sir, said Mrs. Crupp, if you was to take to skittles now, which is healthy, you might find it divert your mind and do you good.' With these words, Mrs. Crupp, affecting to be very careful of the brandy, which was all gone, thanked me with a majestic curtsey, and retired. As her figure disappeared into the gloom of the entry, this counsel certainly presented itself to my mind in the light of a slight liberty on Mrs. Crupp's part, but at the same time I was content to receive it, in another point of view, as a word to the wise, and a warning in future to keep my secret better. End of chapter 26「Chapter twenty seven of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty seven. Tommy Traddles. It may have been in consequence of Mrs. Crupp's advice, and perhaps for no better reason than because there was a certain similarity in the sound of the words skittles and traddles, that it came into my head next day to go and look after traddles. The time he had mentioned was more than out, and he lived in a little street near the veterinary college at Camden Town, which was principally tenanted, as one of our clerks who lived in that direction informed me, by gentlemen students who bought live donkeys and made experiments on those quadrupeds in their private apartments. Having obtained from this clerk a direction to the academic grove in question, I set out the same afternoon to visit my old schoolfellow. I found that the street was not as desirable a one as I could have wished it to be, for the sake of Traddles. The inhabitants appeared to have a propensity to throw any little trifles they were not in want of into the road, which not only made it rank and sloppy, but untidy too, on account of the cabbage leaves. The refuse was not wholly vegetable either, for I myself saw a shoe, a doubled-up saucepan, a black bonnet, and an umbrella in various stages of decomposition as I was looking out for the number I wanted. The general air of the place reminded me forcibly of the days when I lived with Mr. and Mrs. Micawber, an indescribable character of faded gentility that attached to the house I sought, and made it unlike all the other houses in the street, though they were all built on one monotonous pattern, and looked like the early copies of a blundering boy who was learning to make houses, and had not yet got out of his cramped brick-and-mortar pothooks, reminded me still more of Mr. and Mrs. Micawber. Happening to arrive at the door as it was open to the afternoon milkman, I was reminded of Mr. and Mrs. Micawber more forcibly yet. Now, said the milkman to a very youthful servant-girl, has that there bill of mine been here on? Oh, master says he'll attend immediately, was the reply. Because, said the milkman, going on as if he had received no answer, and speaking, as I judged from his tone, rather for the edification of somebody within the house than the youthful servant, an impression which was strengthened by his manner of glaring down the passage, 
because that there bill has been running so long that i begin to believe it's run away altogether and never won't be heard of now i'm not going to stand it you know said the milkman still throwing his voice into the house and glaring down the passage as to his dealing in the mild article of milk by the by there never was a greater anomaly his deportment would have been fierce in a butcher or a brandy merchant the voice of the youthful servant became faint but she seemed to me from the action of her lips again to murmur that it would be attended to immediately i'll tell you what said the milkman looking hard at her for the first time and taking her by the chin are you fond of milk yes i likes it she replied good said the milkman then you won't have none to-morrow do you hear not a fragment of milk you won't have to-morrow i thought she seemed upon the whole relieved by the prospect of having any to-day the milkman after shaking his head at her darkly released her chin and with anything rather than good will opened his can and deposited the usual quantity in the family jug this done he went away muttering and uttered the cry of his trade next door in a vindictive shriek does mr traddles live here i then inquired a mysterious voice from the end of the passage replied yes upon which the youthful servant replied yes is he at home said i again the mysterious voice replied in the affirmative and again the servant echoed it upon this i walked in and in pursuance of the servant's directions walked upstairs conscious as i passed the back parlour door that i was surveyed by a mysterious eye probably belonging to the mysterious voice when i got to the top of the stairs the house was only a story high above the ground floor traddles was on the landing to meet me he was delighted to see me and gave me welcome with great heartiness to his little room it was in the front of the house and extremely neat though sparely furnished it was his only room i saw for there was a sofa bedstead in it and his blacking brushes and blacking were among his books on the top shelf behind a dictionary his table was covered with papers and he was hard at work in an old coat i looked at nothing that i know of but i saw everything even to the prospect of a church upon his china inkstand as i sat down and this too was a faculty confirmed in me in the old micawber times various ingenious arrangements had been made for the disguise of his chest of drawers and the accommodation of his boots his shaving-glass and so forth particularly impressed themselves upon me as evidences of the same traddles who used to make models of elephants dens in writing-paper to put files in and to comfort himself under ill-usage with the memorable works of art i have so often mentioned in the corner of the room was something neatly covered up with a large white cloth i could not make out what it was traddles said i shaking hands with him again after i had sat down i am delighted to see you i am delighted to see you copperfield he returned i am very glad indeed to see you it was only because i was thoroughly glad to see you when we met in eli place and were sure you were thoroughly glad to see me that i gave you this address instead of my address at chambers oh you have chambers said i why i have the fourth of a room and a passage and the fourth of a clerk returned traddles three others and myself unite to have a set of chambers to look business-like and we quarter the clerk too the half a crown a week he costs me his old simple character and good temper and something of his old unlucky fortune also i thought smiled at me in the smile with which he made this explanation it's not because i have the least pride copperfield you understand said traddles that i don't usually give my address here it's only on account of those who come to me who might not like to come here for myself i am fighting my way on in the world against difficulties and it would be ridiculous if i made a pretence of doing anything else 
you are reading for the bar mr waterbrook informed me said i now why yes said traddles rubbing his hands slowly one over another i am reading for the bar the fact is i have just begun to keep my terms after rather a long delay it is some time since i was articled but the payment of that hundred pounds was a great pull a great pull said traddles with a wince as if he had had a tooth out do you know what i can't help thinking of traddles as i sit here looking at you i asked him no said he that sky-blue suit you used to wear lord to be sure cried traddles laughing tighten the arms and legs you know dear me well those were happy times weren't they i think our schoolmaster might have made them happier without doing any harm to any of us i acknowledge i returned perhaps he might said traddles but dear me there was a good deal of fun going on do you remember the nights in the bedroom when we used to have the suppers and when you used to tell those stories <laughs> and do you remember when i got caned for crying about mr mell <laughs> old creakle i should like to see him again too he was a brute to you traddles said i indignantly for his humour made me feel as if i had seen him beaten but yesterday do you think so returned traddles really perhaps he was rather but it's all over a long while <laughs> old creakle you were brought up by an uncle then said i of course i was said traddles the one i was always going to write to and always didn't eh <laughs> yes i had an uncle then he died soon after i left school indeed uh, yes he was a retired what do you call it draper cloth merchant and had made me his heir but he didn't like me when i grew up do you really mean that said i he was so composed that i fancied he must have some other meaning oh yes dear copperfield i mean it replied traddles it was an unfortunate thing but he didn't like me at all he said i wasn't at all what he expected and so he married his housekeeper that what did you do i asked i didn't do anything in particular said traddles i lived with him waiting to be put out in the world until his gout unfortunately flew to his stomach and so he died and so she married a young man and so i wasn't provided for did you get nothing traddles after all oh dear yes said traddles i got fifty pounds i had never been brought up to any profession and at first i was at a loss what to do for myself however i began with the assistance of the son of a professional man who had been to salem house yawler with his nose on one side do you recollect him no he had not been there with me all the noses were straight in my day it don't matter said traddles i began by means of his assistance to copy law writings uh, that didn't answer very well and then i began to state cases for them and make abstracts and that sort of work for i am a plodding kind of fellow copperfield and had learnt the way of doing such things pithily well that put in my head to enter myself as a law student and that ran away with all that was left of the fifty pounds yawler recommended me to one or two other offices however mr waterbrook's for one and i got a good many jobs i was fortunate enough too to become acquainted with a person in the publishing way who was getting up an encyclopaedia and he set me to work and indeed glancing at his table i am at work for him this minute i am not a bad compiler copperfield said traddles preserving the same air of cheerful confidence in all he said but i have no invention at all not a particle i suppose there never was a young man with less originality than i have as traddles seemed to expect that i should assent to this as a matter of course i nodded and he went on with the same sprightly patience i can find no better expression as before so by little and little and not living high i managed to scrape up the hundred pounds at last said traddles and thank heaven that's paid though it was though it certainly was 
said Traddles, wincing again as if he had had another tooth out, a pull. I am living by the sort of work I have mentioned, still, and I hope one of these days to get connected with some newspaper, which would almost be the making of my fortune. Now, Copperfield, you are so exactly what you used to be, with that agreeable face, and it's so pleasant to see you, that I shan't conceal anything. Therefore you must know that I am engaged. Engaged? Oh, Dora! She's a curate's daughter, said Traddles, one of ten down in Devonshire. Yes, for he saw me glance involuntarily at the prospect on the inkstand. That's the church. You come round here to the left, out of this gate, tracing his finger along the inkstand, and exactly where I hold this pen, there stands the house, facing, you understand, towards the church. The delight with which he entered into these particulars did not fully present itself to me until afterwards, for my selfish thoughts were making a ground plan of Mr. Spenlow's house and garden at the same moment. She's such a dear girl, said Traddles, a little older than me, but the dearest girl. I told you I was going out of town. I have been down there. I walked there and I walked back and had the most delightful time. I dare say ours is likely to be a rather long engagement, but our motto is, wait and hope. We always say that, wait and hope, we always say. And she would wait Copperfield till she was sixty, any age you can mention, for me. Traddles rose from his chair and with a triumphant smile put his hand upon the white cloth I had observed. However, he said, it's not that we haven't made a beginning towards housekeeping. No, no, we have begun. We must get on by degrees, but we have begun. Here, drawing the cloth off with great pride and care, are two pieces of furniture to commence with. This flower-pot and stand she bought herself. You put that in a parlour window, said Traddles, falling a little back from it to survey it with greater admiration, with a plant in it, and, and there you are. This little round table with a marble top, it's two feet ten in circumference, I bought. You want to lay a book down, you know, or somebody comes to see you or your wife and wants a place to stand a cup of tea upon, and, and there you are again, said Traddles. It's an admirable piece of workmanship, firm as a rock. I praised them both highly, and Traddles replaced the covering as carefully as he had removed it. It's not a great deal towards the furnishing, said Traddles, but it's something. The tablecloths and pillowcases and articles of that kind are what discourage me most, Copperfield. So does the ironmongery, candle-boxes and gridirons, and that sort of necessaries, because those things tell and mount up. However, wait and hope, and I assure you she's the dearest girl. I'm quite certain of it, said I. In the meantime, said Traddles, coming back to his chair, and this is the end of my prosing about myself, I get on as well as I can. I don't make much, but I don't spend much. In general, I board with the people downstairs, who are very agreeable people indeed. Both Mr. and Mrs. Micawber have seen a good deal of life and are excellent company. Oh, my dear Traddles, I quickly exclaimed, what are you talking about? Traddles looked at me as if he wondered what I was talking about. Mr. and Mrs. Micawber? I repeated. Why, I am intimately acquainted with them. An opportune double knock at the door, which I knew well from old experience in Windsor Terrace, and which nobody but Mr. Micawber could ever have knocked at that door, resolved any doubt in my mind as to their being my old friends. I begged Traddles to ask his landlord to walk up. Traddles accordingly did so over the banister, and Mr. Micawber, not a bit changed, his tights, his stick, his shirt-collar and his eyeglass all the same as ever, came into the room with a genteel and youthful air.
i beg your pardon mr traddles said mr micawber with the old roll in his voice as he checked himself in humming a soft tune i was not aware that there was any individual alien to this tenement in your sanctum mr micawber slightly bowed to me and pulled up his shirt-collar how do you do mr micawber said i sir said mr micawber you are exceedingly obliging i am in statue quo and mrs micawber i pursued sir said mr micawber she is also thank god in statue quo and the children mr micawber sir said mr micawber i rejoice to reply that they are likewise in the enjoyment of salubrity all this time mr micawber had not known me in the least though he had stood face to face with me but now seeing me smile he examined my features with more attention fell back cried is it possible have i the pleasure of again beholding copperfield and shook me by both hands with the utmost fervour good heavens mr traddles said mr micawber to think that i should find you acquainted with a friend of my youth the companion of my earlier days my dear calling over the banisters to mrs micawber while traddles looked on with reason not a little amazed at this description of me here is a gentleman in mr traddles's apartment whom he wishes to have the pleasure of presenting to you my love mr micawber immediately reappeared and shook hands with me again and how is our good friend the doctor copperfield said mr micawber and all the circle at canterbury i have none but good accounts of them said i i am most delighted to hear it said mr micawber it was at canterbury where we last met within the shadow i may figuratively say of that religious edifice immortalized by chaucer which was anciently the resort of pilgrims from the remotest corners in short said mr micawber in the immediate neighbourhood of the cathedral i replied that it was mr micawber continued talking as volubly as he could but not i thought without showing some marks of concern in his countenance that he was sensible of sounds in the next room as of mrs micawber washing her hands and hurriedly opening and shutting drawers that were uneasy in their action you find us copperfield said mr micawber with one eye on traddles at present established on what may be designated as a small and unassuming scale but you are aware that i have in the course of my career surmounted difficulties and conquered obstacles you are no stranger to the fact that there have been periods in my life when it has been requisite that i should pause until certain expected events should turn up when it has been necessary that i should fall back before making what i trust i shall not be accused of presumption in terming a spring the present is one of those momentous stages in the life of man you find me fallen back for a spring i have every reason to believe that a vigorous leap will shortly be the result i was expressing my satisfaction when mrs micawber came in a little more slatternly than she used to be or so she seemed now to my unaccustomed eyes but still with some preparation of herself for company and with a pair of brown gloves on my dear said mr micawber leaning towards me here is a gentleman of the name of copperfield who wishes to renew his acquaintance with you it would have been better as it turned out to have led gently up to this announcement for mrs micawber being in a delicate state of health was overcome by it and was taken so unwell that mr micawber was obliged in great trepidation to run down to the water-butt in the back yard and draw a basinful to lave her brow with she presently revived however and was really pleased to see me 
we had half an hour's talk all together and i asked about the twins who she said were grown great creatures and after master and miss micawber whom she described as absolute giants but they were not produced on that occasion mr micawber was very anxious that i should stay to dinner i should not have been averse to do so but that i imagined i detected trouble and calculation relative to the extent of the cold meat in mrs micawber's eye i therefore pleaded another engagement and observing that mrs micawber's spirits were immediately lightened i resisted all persuasion to forego it but i told traddles and mr and mrs micawber that before i could think of leaving they must appoint a day when they would come and dine with me the occupations to which traddles stood pledged rendered it necessary to fix a somewhat distant one but an appointment was made for the purpose that suited us all and then i took my leave mr micawber under pretence of showing me a nearer way than that by which i had come accompanied me to the corner of the street being anxious he explained to me to say a few words to an old friend in confidence my dear copperfield said mr micawber i need hardly tell you that to have beneath our roof under existing circumstances a mind like that which gleams if i may be allowed the expression which gleams in your friend traddles is an unspeakable comfort with a washerwoman who exposes hard bake for sale in her parlour window dwelling next door and a bow street officer residing over the way you may imagine that his society is a source of consolation to myself and mrs micawber i am at present my dear copperfield engaged in the sale of corn upon commission it is not an avocation of a remunerative description in other words it does not pay and some temporary embarrassments of a pecuniary nature have been the consequence i am however delighted to add that i have now an immediate prospect of something turning up i am not at liberty to say in what direction which i trust will enable me to provide permanently both for myself and for your friend traddles in whom i have an unaffected interest you may perhaps be prepared to hear that mrs micawber is in a state of health which renders it not wholly improbable that an addition may be ultimately made to those pledges of affection which in short to the infantine group mrs micawber's family have been so good as to express their dissatisfaction at this state of things i have merely to observe that i am not aware that it is any business of theirs and that i repel that exhibition of feeling with scorn and with defiance Mr. Micawber then shook hands with me again and left me. End of chapter 27until the day arrived on which I was to entertain my newly found old friends, I lived principally on Dora and coffee. In my lovelorn condition my appetite languished, and I was glad of it, for I felt as though it would have been an act of perfidy towards Dora to have a natural relish for my dinner. The quantity of walking exercise I took was not in this respect attended with its usual consequence, as the disappointment counteracted the fresh air. I have my doubts, too, founded on the acute experience acquired at this period of my life, whether a sound enjoyment of animal food can develop itself freely in any human subject who is always in torment from tight boots. I think the extremities require to be at peace before the stomach will conduct itself with vigour. On the occasion of this domestic little party, I did not repeat my former extensive preparations. I merely provided a pair of soles, a small leg of mutton, and a pigeon pie. 
Mrs. Crupp broke out into rebellion on my first bashful hint in reference to the cooking of the fish and joint, and said with a dignified sense of injury, "'No, no, sir, you will not ask me such a thing, for you are better acquainted with me than to suppose me capable of doing what I cannot do with ample satisfaction to my own feelings.' But in the end a compromise was effected, and Mrs. Crupp consented to achieve this feat on condition that I dined from home for a fortnight afterwards. And here I may remark that what I underwent from Mrs. Crupp in consequence of the tyranny she established over me was dreadful. I never was so much afraid of any one. We made a compromise of everything. If I hesitated, she was taken with that wonderful disorder which was always lying in ambush in her system, ready at the shortest notice to prey upon her vitals. If I rang the bell impatiently, after half a dozen unavailing modest pulls, and she appeared at last, which was not by any means to be relied upon, she would appear with a reproachful aspect, sink breathless on a chair near the door, lay her hand upon her nankeen bosom, and become so ill that I was glad at any sacrifice of brandy or anything else to get rid of her. If I objected to having my bed made at five o'clock in the afternoon, which I do still think an uncomfortable arrangement, one motion of her hand towards the same nankeen region of wounded sensibility was enough to make me falter an apology. In short, I would have done anything in an honourable way rather than give Mrs. Crupp offence, and she was the terror of my life. I bought a second-hand dumb-waiter for this dinner-party, in preference to re-engaging the handy young man, against whom I had conceived a prejudice in consequence of meeting him in the Strand one Sunday morning in a waistcoat remarkably like one of mine, which had been missing since the former occasion. The young gal was re-engaged, but on the stipulation that she would only bring in the dishes and then withdraw to the landing-place beyond the outer door, where a habit of sniffing she had contracted would be lost upon the guests, and where her retiring on the plates would be a physical impossibility. Having laid in the materials for a bowl of punch to be compounded by Mr. Micawber, having provided a bottle of lavender water, two wax candles, a paper of mixed pins and a pincushion, to assist Mrs. Micawber in her toilette at my dressing-table, having also caused the fire in my bedroom to be lighted for Mrs. Micawber's convenience, and having laid the cloth with my own hands, I awaited the result with composure. At the appointed time my three visitors arrived together. Mr. Micawber with more shirt-collar than usual, and a new ribbon to his eyeglass, Mrs. Micawber with her cap in a whitey-brown paper parcel, Traddles carrying the parcel and supporting Mrs. Micawber on his arm. They were all delighted with my residence, when I conducted Mrs. Micawber to my dressing-table, and she saw the scale on which it was prepared for her. She was in such raptures that she called Mr. Micawber to come in and look. "'My dear Copperfield,' said Mr. Micawber, "'this is luxurious. This is a way of life which reminds me of the period when I was myself in a state of celibacy, and Mrs. Micawber had not yet been solicited to plight her faith at the hymeneal altar.' "'He means solicited by him, Mr. Copperfield,' said Mrs. Micawber archly. "'He cannot answer for others.' "'My dear,' returned Mr. Micawber, with sudden seriousness, "'I have no desire to answer for others. I am too well aware that when, in the inscrutable decrees of fate, you were reserved for me, it is possible you may have been reserved for one, destined after a protracted struggle, at length to fall a victim to pecuniary involvements of a complicated nature.' "'I understand your illusion, my love. I regret it, but I can bear it.' <laughs> "'Micawber!' exclaimed Mrs. Micawber in tears. "'Have I deserved this? I, who have never deserted you, who never will desert you, Micawber!' "'My love,' said Mr. Micawber, much affected, 
you will forgive and our old trusted friend copperfield will i am sure forgive the momentary laceration of a wounded spirit made sensitive by a recent collision with a minion of power in other words with a rebel turncock attached to the waterworks and will pity not condemn its excesses mr micawber then embraced mrs micawber and pressed my hand leaving me to infer from this broken allusion that his domestic supply of water had been cut off that afternoon in consequence of default in the payment of the company's rates to divert his thoughts from this melancholy subject i informed mr micawber that i relied upon him for a bowl of punch and led him to the lemons his recent despondency not to say despair was gone in a moment i never saw a man so thoroughly enjoy himself amid the fragrance of lemon peel and sugar the odour of burning rum and the steam of boiling water as mr micawber did that afternoon it was wonderful to see his face shining at us out of a thin cloud of these delicate fumes as he stirred and mixed and tasted and looked as if he were making instead of punch a fortune for his family down to the latest posterity as to mrs micawber i don't know whether it was the effect of the cap or the lavender water or the pins or the fire or the wax candles but she came out of my room comparatively speaking lovely and the lark was never gayer than that excellent woman i suppose i never ventured to inquire but i suppose that mrs crupp after frying the soles was taken ill because we broke down at that point the leg of mutton came up very red within and very pale without besides having a foreign substance of a gritty nature sprinkled over it as if it had had a fall into the ashes of that remarkable kitchen fireplace but we were not in a condition to judge of this fact from the appearance of the gravy for as much as the young gal had dropped it all upon the stairs where it remained by the by in a long train until it was worn out the pigeon pie was not bad but it was a delusive pie the crust being like a disappointing head phrenologically speaking full of lumps and bumps with nothing particular underneath in short the banquet was such a failure that i should have been quite unhappy about the failure i mean for i was always unhappy about dora if i had not been relieved by the great good humour of my company and by a bright suggestion from mr micawber my dear friend copperfield said mr micawber accidents will occur in the best regulated families and in families not regulated by that pervading influence which sanctifies while it enhances the uh, i would say in short the influence of a woman in the lofty character of a wife they may be expected with confidence and must be born with philosophy if you will allow me to take the liberty of remarking that there are few comestibles better in their way than a devil and that i believe with a little division of labour we could accomplish a good one if the young person in attendance could produce a gridiron i would put it to you that this little misfortune may be easily repaired there was a gridiron in the pantry on which my morning rasher of bacon was cooked we had it in in a twinkling and immediately applied ourselves to carrying mr micawber's idea into effect the division of labour to which he had referred was this traddles cut the mutton into slices mr micawber who could do anything of this sort to perfection covered them with pepper mustard salt and cayenne i put them on the gridiron turned them with a fork and took them off under mr micawber's direction and mrs micawber heated and continually stirred some mushroom ketchup in a little saucepan when we had slices enough done to begin upon we fell to with our sleeves tucked up at the wrists more slices sputtering and blazing on the fire and our attention divided between the mutton on our plates and the mutton then preparing 
what with the novelty of this cookery the excellence of it the bustle of it the frequent starting up to look after it the frequent sitting down to dispose of it as the crisp slices came off the gridiron hot and hot the being so busy so flushed with the fire so amused and in the midst of such a tempting noise and savour we reduced the leg of mutton to the bone my own appetite came back miraculously i am ashamed to record it but i really believe i forgot dora for a little while i am satisfied that mr and mrs micawber could not have enjoyed the feast more if they had sold a bed to provide it traddles laughed as heartily almost all the time as he ate and worked indeed we all did all at once and i dare say there never was a greater success we were in the height of our enjoyment and were all busily engaged in our several departments endeavouring to bring the last batch of slices to a state of perfection that should crown the feast when i was aware of a strange presence in the room and my eyes encountered those of the staid littimer standing hat in hand before me what's the matter i involuntarily asked i beg your pardon sir i was directed to come in is my master not here sir no have you not seen him sir no don't you come from him not immediately so sir did he tell you you would find him here not exactly so sir but i should think he might be here to-morrow as he has not been here to-day is he coming up from oxford i beg sir he returned respectfully that you will be seated and allow me to do this with which he took the fork from my unresisting hand and bent over the gridiron as if his whole attention were concentrated on it we should not have been much discomposed i dare say by the appearance of steerforth himself but we became in a moment the meekest of the meek before his respectable serving-man mr micawber humming a tune to show that he was quite at ease subsided into his chair with the handle of a hastily concealed fork sticking out of the bosom of his coat as if he had stabbed himself mrs micawber put on her brown gloves and assumed a genteel languor traddles ran his greasy hands through his hair and stood it bolt upright and stared in confusion on the tablecloth as for me i was a mere infant at the head of my own table and hardly ventured to glance at the respectable phenomenon who had come from heaven knows where to put my establishment to rights meanwhile he took the mutton off the gridiron and gravely handed it round we all took some but our appreciation of it was gone and we merely made a show of eating it as we severally pushed away our plates he noiselessly removed them and set on the cheese he took that off too when it was done with cleared the table piled everything on the dumb-waiter gave us our wine-glasses and of his own accord wheeled the dumb-waiter into the pantry all this was done in a perfect manner and he never raised his eyes from what he was about yet his very elbows when he had his back towards me seemed to teem with the expression of his fixed opinion that i was extremely young can i do anything more sir i thanked him and said no but would he take no dinner himself none i am obliged to you sir is mr steerforth coming from oxford i beg pardon sir is mr steerforth coming from oxford i should imagine that he might be here to-morrow sir i rather thought he might have been here to-day sir the mistake is mine no doubt sir if you should see him first said i if you'll excuse me sir i don't think i shall see him first in case you do said i pray say that i am sorry he was not here to-day as an old schoolfellow of his was here indeed sir and he divided a bow between me and traddles with a glance at the latter he was moving softly to the door when in a forlorn hope of saying something naturally which i never could to this man 
I said, Oh, Littimer. Sir? Did you remain long at John at that time? Not particularly so, sir. You saw the boat completed? Yes, sir. I remained behind on purpose to see the boat completed. I know. He raised his eyes to mine respectfully. Mr. Steerforth has not seen it yet, I suppose? I really can't say, sir. I think, but I really can't say, sir. I wish you good night, sir. He comprehended everybody present with the respectful bow with which he followed these words, and disappeared. My visitor seemed to breathe far more easily when he was gone, but my own relief was very great, for besides the constraint, arising from that extraordinary sense of being at a disadvantage which I always had in this man's presence, my conscience had embarrassed me with whispers that I had mistrusted his master, and I could not repress a vague uneasy dread that he might find it out. How was it, having so little in reality to conceal, that I always did feel as if this man were finding me out? Mr. Micawber roused me from this reflection, which was blended with a certain remorseful apprehension of seeing Steerforth himself, by bestowing many encomiums on the absent Littimer as a most respectable fellow, and a thoroughly admirable servant. Mr. Micawber, I may remark, had taken his full share of the general bow, and had received it with infinite condescension. "'But punch, my dear Copperfield,' said Mr. Micawber, tasting it, "'like time and tide waits for no man. Ah, it is at the present moment in high flavour. My love, will you give me your opinion?' Mrs. Micawber pronounced it excellent. "'Then I will drink,' said Mr. Micawber, "'if my friend Copperfield will permit me to take that social liberty, to the days when my friend Copperfield and myself were younger, and fought our way in the world side by side.' i may say of myself and copperfield in the words we have sung together before now that we tway have run about the braes and pud the goins fine in a figurative point of view on several occasions i am not exactly aware said mr micawber with the old roll in his voice and the old indescribable air of saying something genteel what gowns may be but i have no doubt that copperfield and myself would frequently have taken a pull at them if it had been feasible Mr. Micawber, at the then present moment, took a pull at his punch. So we all did, Travels evidently lost in wondering at what distant time Mr. Micawber and I could have been comrades in the battle of the world. "'Ahem!' said Mr. Micawber, clearing his throat, and warming with the punch and the fire. "'My dear, another glass?' Mrs. Micawber said it must be very little, but we couldn't allow that, so it was a glassful. "'As we are quite confidential here, Mr. Copperfield,' said Mrs. Micawber, sipping her punch, "'Mr. Traddles being part of our domesticity, I should much like to have your opinion on Mr. Micawber's prospects. For corn,' said Mrs. Micawber argumentatively, "'as I have repeatedly said to Mr. Micawber, maybe gentlemanly, but it is not remunerative. Commission to the extent of two and ninepence in a fortnight cannot, however limited our ideas, be considered remunerative.' "'We were all agreed upon that. Then—' said Mrs. Micawber, who prided herself on taking a clear view of things, and keeping Mr. Micawber straight by her woman's wisdom, when he might otherwise go a little crooked. Then I ask myself this question. If corn is not to be relied upon, what is? Are colds to be relied upon? Not at all. We have turned our attention to that experiment, on the suggestion of my family, and we find it fallacious. Mr. Micawber, leaning back in his chair with his hands in his pockets, eyed us aside and nodded his head, as much as to say that the case was very clearly put. 
the articles of corn and coals said mrs micawber still more argumentatively being equally out of the question mr copperfield i naturally look round the world and say what is there in which a person of mr micawber's talent is likely to succeed and i exclude the doing anything on commission because commission is not a certainty what is best suited to a person of mr micawber's peculiar temperament is i am convinced a certainty traddles and i both expressed by a feeling murmur that this great discovery was no doubt true of mr micawber and that it did him much credit i will not conceal from you my dear copperfield said mrs micawber that i have long felt the brewing business to be particularly adapted to mr micawber look at barclay and perkins look at truman hanbury and buxton it is on that extensive footing that mr micawber i know from my knowledge of him is calculated to shine and the profits i am told are enormous but if mr micawber cannot get into the firms which decline to answer his letters when he offers his services even in an inferior capacity what is the use of dwelling upon that idea none i may have a conviction that mr micawber's manners ahem really my dear interposed mr micawber my love be silent said mrs micawber laying her brown glove on his hand i may have a conviction mr copperfield that mr micawber's manners peculiarly qualify him for the banking business i may argue within myself that if i had a deposit at a banking-house the manners of mr micawber as representing that banking-house would inspire confidence and must extend the connection but if the various banking-houses refuse to avail themselves of mr micawber's abilities or receive the offer of them with contumely what is the use of dwelling upon that idea None as to originating a banking business i may know that there are members of my family who if they chose to place their money in mr micawber's hands might found an establishment of that description but if they do not choose to place their money in mr micawber's hands which they don't what is the use of that again i contend that we are no farther advanced than we were before i shook my head and said not a bit traddles also shook his head and said not a bit what do i deduce from this mrs micawber went on to say still with the same air of putting a case lucidly what is the conclusion my dear mr copperfield to which i am irresistibly brought am i wrong in saying it is clear that we must live i answered not at all and traddles answered not at all and i found myself afterwards sagely adding alone that a person must either live or die just so returned mrs micawber it is precisely that and the fact is my dear mr copperfield that we cannot live without something widely different from existing circumstances shortly turning up now i am convinced myself and this i have pointed out to mr micawber several times of late that things cannot be expected to turn up of themselves we must in measure assist them to turn up i may be wrong but i have formed that opinion both traddles and i applauded it highly very well said mrs micawber then what do i recommend here is mr micawber with a variety of qualifications with great talent really my love said mr micawber pray my dear allow me to continue here is mr micawber with a variety of qualifications with great talent i should say with genius but that may be the partiality of a wife traddles and i both murmured no and here is mr micawber without any suitable position or employment where does that responsibility rest clearly on society then i would make a fact so disgracefully known and boldly challenge society to set it right it appears to me my dear mr copperfield said mrs micawber forcibly that what mr micawber has to do is to throw down the gauntlet to society and say in effect show me who will take that up let the party immediately step forward I venture to ask Mrs. Micawber how this was to be done. 
by advertising said mrs micawber in all the papers it appears to me that what mr micawber has to do in justice to himself in justice to his family and i will even go so far as to say in justice to society by which he has been hitherto overlooked is to advertise in all the papers to describe himself plainly as so-and-so with such-and-such qualifications and to put it thus now employ me on remunerative terms and address post paid to w m post office candom town this idea of mrs micawber's my dear copperfield said mr micawber making his shirt-collar meet in front of his chin and glancing at me sideways is in fact the leap to which i alluded when i last had the pleasure of seeing you advertising is rather expensive i remarked dubiously exactly so said mrs micawber preserving the same logical air quite true my dear copperfield i have made the identical observation to mr micawber it is for that reason especially uh, that i think mr micawber ought as i have already said in justice to himself in justice to his family and in justice to society to raise a certain sum of money on a bill mr micawber leaning back in his chair trifled with his eyeglass and cast his eyes up at the ceiling uh, but i thought him observant of traddles too who was looking at the fire if no member of my family said mrs micawber is possessed of sufficient natural feeling to negotiate that bill i believe there is a better business term to express what i mean mr micawber with his eyes still cast up at the ceiling suggested discount to discount that bill said mrs micawber then my opinion is that mr micawber should go into the city should take that bill into the money market and should dispose of it for what he can get if the individuals in the money market oblige mr micawber to sustain a great sacrifice that is between themselves and their consciences i view it steadily as an investment i recommend mr micawber my dear mr copperfield to do the same to regard it as an investment which is sure of return and to make up his mind to any sacrifice i felt but i am sure i don't know why that this was self-denying and devoted in mrs micawber and i uttered a murmur to that effect traddles who took his tone from me did likewise still looking at the fire i will not said mrs micawber finishing her punch and gathering her scarf about her shoulders preparatory to her withdrawal to my bedroom i will not protract these remarks on the subject of mr micawber's pecuniary affairs at your fireside my dear mr copperfield and in the presence of mr traddles who though not so old a friend is quite one of ourselves i could not refrain from making you acquainted with the course i advise mr micawber to take i feel that the time has arrived when mr micawber should exert himself and i will add assert himself and it appears to me that these are the means i am aware that i am merely a female and that a masculine judgment is usually considered more competent to the discussion of such questions still i must not forget that when i lived at home with my papa and mamma my papa was in the habit of saying emma's form is fragile but her grasp of a subject is inferior to none uh, that my papa too was partial i well know but that he was an observer of character in some degree my duty and my reason equally forbid me to doubt with these words and resisting our entreaties that she would grace the remaining circulation of the punch with her presence mrs micawber retired to my bedroom and really i felt that she was a noble woman the sort of woman who might have been a roman matron and done all manner of heroic things in times of public trouble in the fervour of this impression i congratulated mr micawber on the treasure he possessed so did traddles mr micawber extended his hand to each of us in succession and then covered his face with his pocket-handkerchief which i think had more snuff upon it than he was aware 
he then returned to the punch in the highest state of exhilaration he was full of eloquence he gave us to understand that in our children we lived again and that under the pressure of pecuniary difficulties any accession to their number was doubly welcome he said that mrs micawber had latterly had her doubts on this point but that he had dispelled them and reassured her as to her family they were totally unworthy of her their sentiments were utterly indifferent to him and they might i quote his own expression go to the devil mr micawber then delivered a warm eulogy on traddles he said traddles was a character to the steady virtues of which he mr micawber would lay no claim but which he thanked heaven he could admire he feelingly alluded to the young lady unknown whom traddles had honoured with his affection and who had reciprocated that affection by honouring and blessing traddles with her affection mr micawber pledged her so did i traddles thanked us both by saying with the simplicity and honesty i had sense enough to be quite charmed with i am very much obliged to you indeed and i do assure you she is the dearest girl mr micawber took an early opportunity after that of hinting with the utmost delicacy and ceremony at the state of my affections nothing but the serious assurance of his friend copperfield to the contrary he observed could deprive him of the impression that his friend copperfield loved and was beloved after feeling very hot and uncomfortable for some time and after a good deal of blushing stammering and denying i said having my glass in my hand well i would give them d which so excited and gratified mr micawber that he ran with a glass of punch into my bedroom in order that mrs micawber might drink d who drank it with enthusiasm crying from within in a shrill voice here here my dear copperfield i am delighted here and tapping the wall by way of applause our conversation afterwards took a more worldly turn mr micawber telling us that he found camden town inconvenient and that the first thing he contemplated doing when the advertisement should have been the cause of something satisfactory turning up was to move he mentioned a terrace at the western end of oxford street fronting hyde park on which he always had his eye but which he did not expect to attain immediately as it would require a large establishment there would probably be an interval he explained in which he should content himself with the upper part of a house over some respectable place of business say in piccadilly which would be a cheerful situation for mrs micawber and where by throwing out a bow window or carrying up the roof another story or making some little alteration of that sort they might live comfortably and reputably for a few years whatever was reserved for him he expressly said or whatever his abode might be we might rely on this there would always be a room for traddles and a knife and fork for me we acknowledged his kindness and he begged us to forgive his having launched into these practical and business-like details and to excuse it as natural in one who was making entirely new arrangements in life mrs micawber tapping at the wall again to know if tea were ready broke up this particular phase of our friendly conversation she made tea for us in a most agreeable manner and whenever i went near her in handing out the teacups and bread and butter she asked me in a whisper whether d was fair or dark or whether she was short or tall or something of that kind which i think i liked after tea we discussed a variety of topics before the fire and mrs micawber was good enough to sing us in a small thin flat voice which i remembered to have considered when i first knew her the very table-beer of acoustics the favourable ballads of the dashing white sergeant and little Taflin for both of these songs mrs micawber had been famous when she lived at home with her papa and mamma mr micawber told us that when he heard her sing the first one on the first occasion of his seeing her beneath the parental roof she had attracted his attention in an extraordinary degree but that when it came to little Taflin, 
he had resolved to win that woman or perish in the attempt it was between ten and eleven o'clock when mrs micawber rose to replace her cap in the whitey-brown paper parcel and to put on her bonnet mr micawber took the opportunity of traddles putting on his greatcoat to slip a letter into my hand with a whispered request that i would read it at my leisure i also took the opportunity of holding my candle over the banisters to light them down when mr micawber was going first leading mrs micawber and traddles was following with the cap to detain traddles for a moment on the top of the stairs traddles said i uh, mr micawber don't mean any harm poor fellow but if i were you i wouldn't lend him anything my dear copperfield returned traddles smiling i haven't got anything to lend you have got a name you know i said oh you call that something to lend returned traddles with a thoughtful look certainly oh said traddles yes to be sure i'm very much obliged to you copperfield but i'm afraid i have lent him that already for the bill that is to be a certain investment i inquired no said traddles not for that one uh, this is the first i have heard of that one i have been thinking that he will most likely propose that one on the way home uh, mine's another i hope there will be nothing wrong about it i said i hope not said traddles i should think not though because he told me only the other day that it was provided for that was mr micawber's expression provided for mr micawber looking up at this juncture to where we were standing i had only time to repeat my caution traddles thanked me and descended but i was much afraid when i observed the good-natured manner in which he went down with a cap in his hand and gave mrs micawber his arm that he would be carried into the money-market neck and heels i returned to my fireside and was musing half gravely and half laughing on the character of mr micawber and the old relations between us when i heard a quick step ascending the stairs at first i thought it was traddles coming back for something mr micawber had left behind but as the step approached i knew it and felt my heart beat high and my blood rush to my face for it was steerforth's i never was unmindful of agnes and she never left that sanctuary in my thoughts if i may call it so where i had placed her from the first but when he entered and stood before me with his hand out the darkness that had fallen on him changed to light and i felt confounded and ashamed of having doubted one i loved so heartily i loved her none the less i thought of her as the same benignant gentle angel in my life i reproached myself not her with having done him an injury and i would have made him any atonement if i had known what to make and how to make it why daisy old boy dumbfoundered laughed steerforth shaking my hand heartily and throwing it gaily away have i detected you in another feast you sybarite these dr commons fellows are the gayest men in town i believe you beat us sober oxford people all to nothing his bright glance went merrily round the room as he took the seat on the sofa opposite me which mrs micawber had recently vacated and stirred the fire into a blaze i was so surprised at first said i giving him welcome with all the cordiality i felt that i had hardly breath to greet you with steerforth well the sight of me is good for sore eyes as the scotch say replied steerforth and so is the sight of you daisy in full bloom how are you my bacchanal i am very well said i not at all a bacchanalian to-night though i confess to another party of three all of whom i met in the street talking loud in your praise returned steerforth who's your friend in the tights i gave him the best idea i could in a few words of mr micawber he laughed heartily at my feeble portrait of that gentleman and said he was a man to know and he must know him 
"'But who do you suppose our other friend is?' said I in my turn. "'Heaven knows,' said Steerforth. "'Not a bore, I hope. I thought he looked a little like one.' "'Traddles!' said I triumphantly. "'Who's he?' asked Steerforth in his careless way. "'Don't you remember Traddles? Traddles in our room at Salem House?' "'Oh, that fellow,' said Steerforth, beating a lump of coal on the top of the fire with a poker. "'Is he as soft as ever? And where the deuce did you pick him up?' I extolled Traddles in reply as highly as I could, for I felt that Steerforth rather slighted him. Steerforth dismissed the subject with a light nod and a smile, and the remark that he would be glad to see the old fellow too, for he had always been an odd fish, inquired if I could give him anything to eat.' During most of this short dialogue, when he had not been speaking in a wild, vivacious manner, he sat idly beating on the lump of coal with the poker. I observed that he did the same thing while I was getting out the remains of the pigeon pie and so forth. "'Why, Daisy, here's a supper for a king!' he exclaimed, starting out of his silence with a burst and taking his seat at the table. "'I shall do it justice, for I have come from Yarmouth.' "'I thought you came from Oxford,' I returned. "'Not I,' said Steerforth. "'I have been seafaring, better employed.' "'Littimer was here to-day to inquire for you,' I remarked, "'and I understood him that you were at Oxford. "'Though now I think of it, he certainly did not say so.' "'Littimer is a greater fool than I thought him, "'to have been inquiring for me at all,' said Steerforth, "'jovially pouring out a glass of wine and drinking to me. "'As to understanding him, "'you are a cleverer fellow than most of us, Daisy, if you can do that.' "'That's true, indeed,' said I, moving my chair to the table. "'So you have been at Yarmouth, Steerforth, interested to know all about it. Have you been there long?' "'No,' he returned, "'an escapade of a week or so.' "'And how are they all? Of course little Emily is not married yet.' "'Not yet. Going to be, I believe, in so many weeks or months or something or other. I have not seen much of them. By the by, he laid down his knife and fork, which he had been using with great diligence, and began feeling in his pockets. I have a letter for you. From whom? Why, from your old nurse, he returned, taking some papers out of his breast pocket. J. Steerforth, Esquire, debtor to the willing mind. That's not it. Patience, and we'll find it presently. Old What's-his-name is in a bad way, and it's about that, I believe. Barkus, do you mean? Yes, still feeling in his pockets and looking over their contents. It's all over for poor Barkis, I'm afraid. I saw a little apothecary there, surgeon or whatever he is, who brought your worship into the world. He was mighty learned about the case to me, but the upshot of his opinion was that the carrier was making his last journey rather fast. Put your hand into the breast pocket of my greatcoat on the chair yonder, and I think you'll find the letter. Is it there? Here it is, said I. That's right. It was from Peggotty something less legible than usual in brief. It informed me of her husband's hopeless state, and hinted at his being a little nearer than heretofore, and consequently more difficult to manage for his own comfort. It said nothing of her weariness and watching, and praised him highly. It was written with a plain, unaffected, homely piety that I knew to be genuine, and ended with, My duty to my ever-darling, meaning myself. While I deciphered it, Steerforth continued to eat and drink. "'It's a bad job,' he said when I had done. "'But the sun sets every day, and people die every minute, and we mustn't be scared by the common lot. If we fail to hold our own because that equal foot at all man's doors was heard knocking somewhere, every object in this world would slip from us. No, ride on. Rough shod if need be, smooth shod if that will do. But ride on. Ride on over all obstacles and win the race.' "'And win what race?' said I. "'The race that one has started in,' he said. "'Ride on.' 
I noticed, I remember, as he paused, looking at me with his handsome head a little thrown back and his glass raised in his hand, that though the freshness of the sea-wind was on his face, there were traces in it, made since I last saw him, as if he had applied himself to some habitual strain of the fervent energy which, when roused, was so passionately roused within him. I had it in my thoughts to remonstrate with him upon his desperate way of pursuing any fancy that he took, such as this buffeting of rough seas, and braving of hard weather, for example, when my mind glanced off to the immediate subject of our conversation again, and pursued that instead. "'I'll tell you what, Steerforth,' said I, "'if your high spirits will listen to me.' "'They are potent spirits, and will do whatever you like,' he answered, moving from the table to the fireside again. "'Then I'll tell you what, Steerforth.' I think I will go down and see my old nurse. It is not that I can do her any good or render her any real service, but she is so attached to me that my visit will have as much effect on her as if I could do both. She will take it so kindly that it will be a comfort and support to her. It's no great effort to make, I'm sure, for such a friend as she has been to me. Wouldn't you go a day's journey if you were in my place? His face was thoughtful as he sat considering a little before he answered in a low voice. Well, go. You can do no harm. "'You have just come back,' said I, "'and it would be in vain to ask you to go with me.' "'Quite,' returned he. "'I am for Highgate to-night. "'I have not seen my mother this long time, "'and it lies upon my conscience, "'for it's something to be loved as she loves her prodigal son.' "'Ah, nonsense! "'You mean to go to-morrow, I suppose?' "'He said, holding me out at arm's length "'with a hand on each of my shoulders. "'Yes, I think so.' "'Well, then, don't go till next day. "'I wanted you to come and stay a few days with us.' Here I am on purpose to bid you, and you fly off to Yarmouth. You're a nice fellow to talk of flying off, Steerforth, who are always running wild on some unknown expedition or other. He looked at me for a moment without speaking, and then rejoined, still holding me as before, and giving me a shake. Come, say the next day, and pass as much of tomorrow as you can with us. Who knows when we may meet again else? Come, say the next day. I want you to stand between Rosa Dartle and me, and keep us asunder. "'Would you love each other too much without me?' "'Yes, or hate,' laughed Steerforth. "'No matter which. Come, say the next day.' I said the next day, and he put on his great coat and lighted his cigar, and set off to walk home. Finding him in this intention, I put on my own great coat, but I did not light my own cigar, having had enough of that for a while, and walked with him as far as the open road, a dull road then at night. He was in great spirits all the way, and when we parted and I looked after him going so gallantly and airily homeward, I thought of his saying, Ride on over all obstacles and win the race, and wished for the first time that he had some worthy race to run. I was undressing in my own room when Mr. Micawber's letter tumbled on the floor. Thus reminded of it, I broke the seal and read as follows. It was dated an hour and a half before dinner. I am not sure whether I have mentioned that, when Mr. Micawber was at any particularly desperate crisis, he used a sort of legal phraseology which he seemed to think equivalent to winding up his affairs. Sir, for I dare not call you my dear Copperfield, it is expedient that I should inform you that the undersigned is crushed. Some flickering efforts to spare you the premature knowledge of this calamitous position you may observe in him this day, but hope has sunk beneath the horizon, and the undersigned is crushed. The present communication is penned within the personal range, I cannot call it the society, of an individual in a state closely bordering on intoxication employed by a broker. 
that individual is in legal possession of the premises under a distress for rent his inventory includes not only the chattels and effects of every description belonging to the undersigned as yearly tenant of this habitation but also those appertaining to mr thomas traddles lodger a member of the honourable society of the inner temple if any drop of gloom were wanting in the overflowing cup which is now commended in the language of an immortal writer to the lips of the undersigned it would be found in the fact that a friendly acceptance granted to the undersigned by the aforementioned mr thomas traddles for the sum of twenty-three pounds four shillings nine and a half pence is overdue and is not provided for also in the fact that the living responsibilities clinging to the undersigned will in the course of nature be increased by the sum of one more helpless victim whose miserable appearance may be looked for in round numbers at the expiration of a period not exceeding six lunar months from the present date after premising thus much it would be a work of supererogation to add that dust and ashes are forever scattered on the head of wilkins micawber poor traddles i knew enough of mr micawber by this time to foresee that he might be expected to recover the blow but my night's rest was sorely distressed by the thought of traddles and of the curate's daughter who was one of ten down in devonshire and who was such a dear girl and who would wait for traddles nominous praise until she was sixty or any age that could be mentioned End of chapter twenty eight Chapter twenty nine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty nine. I visit Steerforth at his home again. I mentioned to Mr. Spenlow in the morning that I wanted leave of absence for a short time, and as I was not in the receipt of any salary, and consequently was not obnoxious to the implacable Jorkins, there was no difficulty about it i took that opportunity with my voice sticking in my throat and my sight failing as i uttered the words to express my hope that miss spenlow was quite well to which mr spenlow replied with no more emotion than if he had been speaking of an ordinary human being that he was much obliged to me and she was very well we articled clerks as germs of the patrician order of proctors were treated with so much consideration that i was almost my own master at all times as i did not care however to get to highgate before one or two o'clock in the day and as we had another little excommunication case in court that morning which was called the office of the judge promoted by tipkins against bullock for his soul's correction i passed an hour or two in attendance on it with mr spenlow very agreeably it arose out of a scuffle between two churchwardens, one of whom was alleged to have pushed the other against a pump, the handle of which pump projecting into a schoolhouse, which schoolhouse was under the gable of a church roof, made the push an ecclesiastical offence. It was an amusing case, and sent me up to Highgate on the box of the stage-coach, thinking about the commons and what Mr. Spenlow had said about touching the commons and bringing down the country. Mrs. Steerforth was pleased to see me, and so was Rosa Dartle. I was agreeably surprised to find that Littimer was not there, and that we were attended by a modest little parlour-maid, with blue ribbons in her cap, whose eye it was much more pleasant and much less disconcerting to catch by accident than the eye of that respectable man. 
but what I particularly observed, before I had been half an hour in the house, was the close and attentive watch Miss Dartle kept upon me, and the lurking manner in which she seemed to compare my face with Steerforth's, and Steerforth's with mine, and to lie in wait for something to come out between the two. So surely as I looked towards her, did I see that eager visage with its gaunt black eyes and searching brow intent on mine, or passing suddenly from mine to Steerforth's, or comprehending both of us at once. In this lynx-like scrutiny she was so far from faltering when she saw I observed it, that at such a time she only fixed her piercing look upon me with a more intent expression still. Blameless as I was, and I knew that I was, in reference to any wrong she could possibly suspect me of, I shrunk before her strange eyes, quite unable to endure their hungry lustre. All day she seemed to pervade the whole house. If I talked to Steerforth in his room, I heard her dress rustle in the little gallery outside when he and I engaged in some of our old exercises on the lawn behind the house. I saw her face pass from window to window like a wandering light, until it fixed itself in one and watched us. When we all four went out walking in the afternoon, she closed her thin hand on my arm like a spring, to keep me back, while Steerforth and his mother went on out of hearing, and then she spoke to me. "'You have been a long time,' she said, without coming here. Is your profession really so engaging and interesting as to absorb your whole attention? I ask because I always want to be informed when I am ignorant. Is it really, though? I replied that I liked it well enough, but that I certainly could not claim so much for it. Oh, I am glad to know that, because I always like to be put right when I am wrong, said Rosa Dartle. You mean it is a little dry, perhaps? Well, I replied, perhaps it was a little dry. "'Oh, and that's a reason why you want relief and change, excitement and all that,' said she. "'Ah, very true. But isn't it a little, eh, for him? I don't mean you.' A quick glance of her eye towards the spot where Steerforth was walking, with his mother leaning on his arm, showed me whom she meant, but beyond that I was quite lost, and I looked so, I have no doubt. "'Don't it? I don't say that it does. Mind, I want to know. Don't it rather engross him?' Don't it make him, perhaps, a little more remiss than usual in his visits to his blindly doting, eh? With another quick glance at them, and such a glance at me as seemed to look into my innermost thoughts. Miss Dartle, I returned, pray do not think. I don't, said she. Oh, dear me, don't suppose that I think anything. I am not suspicious. I only ask a question. I don't state my opinion. I want to found an opinion on what you tell me. Then it is not so. Well... I am very glad to know it. It certainly is not the fact, said I, perplexed, that I am accountable for Steerforth's having been away from home longer than usual, if he has been, which I really don't know at this moment, unless I understand it from you. I have not seen him this long while, until last night. No? Indeed, Miss Dartle, no. As she looked full at me, I saw her face grow sharper and paler, and the marks of the old wound lengthen out until it cut through the disfigured lip and deep into the nether lip, and slanted down the face. There was something positively awful to me in this, and in the brightness of her eyes, as she said, looking fixedly at me. What is he doing? I repeated the words, more to myself than her, being so amazed. What is he doing? she said, with an eagerness that seemed enough to consume her like a fire. In what is that man assisting him, who never looks at me without an inscrutable falsehood in his eyes? If you are honourable and faithful, I don't ask you to betray your friend. I ask you only to tell me. Is it anger? Is it hatred? Is it pride? 
Is it restlessness? Is it some wild fancy? Is it love? What is it that is leading him? Miss Dartle, I returned, how shall I tell you, so that you will believe me, that I know nothing at Steerforth different from what there was when I first came here? I can think of nothing. I firmly believe there is nothing. I hardly understand even what you mean. As she still stood looking fixedly at me, a twitching or throbbing, from which I could not dissociate the idea of pain, came into that cruel mark, and lifted up the corner of her lip, as if with scorn, or with a pity that despised its object. She put her hand upon it hurriedly, a hand so thin and delicate, that when I had seen her hold it up before the fire to shade her face, I had compared it in my thoughts to fine porcelain, and saying, in a quick, fierce, passionate way, I swear you to secrecy about this said not a word more. Mrs. Steerforth was particularly happy in her son's society, and Steerforth was, on this occasion, particularly attentive and respectful to her. It was very interesting to me to see them together, not only on account of their mutual affection, but because of the strong personal resemblance between them, and the manner in which what was haughty or impetuous in him was softened by age and sex in her, to a gracious dignity i thought more than once that it was well no serious cause of division had ever come between them or two such natures i ought rather to express it two such shades of the same nature might have been harder to reconcile than the two extremest opposites in creation the idea did not originate in my own discernment i am bound to confess but in a speech of rosa dartle's she said at dinner oh but do tell me though somebody because i have been thinking about it all day and i want to know you want to know what rosa returned Mrs. Steerforth. Pray, pray, Rosa, do not be mysterious. Mysterious, she cried. Oh, really, do you consider me so? Do I constantly entreat you, said Mrs. Steerforth, to speak plainly, in your own natural manner? Oh, then this is not my natural manner, she rejoined. Now you must really bear with me, because I ask for information. We never know ourselves. It has become a second nature, said Mrs. Steerforth, without any displeasure. But I remember, and so must you, I think, when your manner was different, Rosa, when it was not so guarded, and was more trustful. I am sure you are right, she returned, and so it is that bad habits grow upon one. Really? Less guarded and more trustful? How can I, imperceptibly, have changed, I wonder? Well, that's very odd. I must study to regain my former self. I wish you would, said Mrs. Steerforth, with a smile. Oh, I really will, you know, she answered. I will learn frankness from, let me see, from James. You cannot learn frankness, Rosa, said Mrs. Steerforth quickly, for there was always some effect of sarcasm in what Rosa Dartle said, though it was said, as this was, in the most unconscious manner in the world, in a better school. That I am sure of, she answered, with uncommon fervour. If I am sure of anything, of course, you know, I am sure of that. Mrs. Steerforth appeared to me to regret having been a little nettled, for she presently said, in a kind tone, Well, my dear Rosa, we have not heard what it is that you want to be satisfied about. That I want to be satisfied about, she replied with provoking coldness. Oh, it was only whether people who are like each other in their moral constitutions, is that the phrase? It's as good a phrase as another, said Steerforth. Thank you. Whether people who are like each other in their moral constitution are in greater danger than people not so circumstanced, supposing any serious cause of variance to arise between them, of being divided angrily and deeply. I should say yes, said Steerforth. 
should you she retorted dear me supposing then for instance any unlikely thing will do for a supposition that you and your mother were to have a serious quarrel my dear rosa interposed mrs steerforth laughing good-naturedly suggest some other supposition james and i know our duty to each other better i pray heaven oh said miss dartle nodding her head thoughtfully to be sure that would prevent it why of course it would exactly now i am glad i have been so foolish as to put the case for it is so very good to know that your duty to each other would prevent it thank you very much one other little circumstance connected with miss dartle i must not omit for i had reason to remember it thereafter when all the irremediable past was rendered plain during the whole of this day, but especially from this period of it, Steerforth exerted himself with his utmost skill, and that was with his utmost ease, to charm this singular creature into a pleasant and pleased companion. That he should succeed was no matter of surprise to me. That she should struggle against the fascinating influence of his delightful art, delightful nature, I thought it then, did not surprise me either, for I knew that she was sometimes jaundiced and perverse i saw her features and her manner slowly change i saw her look at him with growing admiration i saw her try more and more faintly but always angrily as if she condemned a weakness in herself to resist the captivating power that he possessed and finally i saw her sharp glance soften and her smile become quite gentle and i ceased to be afraid of her as i had really been all day and we all sat down about the fire talking and laughing together with as little reserve as if we had been children whether it was because we had sat there so long or because steerforth was resolved not to lose the advantage he had gained i do not know but we did not remain in the dining-room more than five minutes after her departure she is playing her harp said steerforth softly at the drawing-room door and nobody but my mother has heard her do that i believe these three years he said it with a curious smile which was gone directly and we went into the room and found her alone don't get up said steerforth which he had already done my dear rosa don't be kind for once and sing us an irish song what do you care for an irish song she returned much said steerforth much more than for any other here is daisy too loves music from his soul sing us an irish song rosa and let me sit and listen as i used to do he did not touch her or the chair from which he had risen but sat himself near the harp she stood beside it for some little while in a curious way going through the motion of playing it with her right hand but not sounding it at length she sat down and drew it to her with one sudden action and played and sang i don't know what it was in her touch or voice that made that song the most unearthly i have ever heard in my life or can imagine there was something fearful in the reality of it it was as if it had never been written or set to music but sprung out of passion within her which found imperfect utterance in the low sounds of her voice and crouched again when all was still i was dumb when she leaned beside the harp again playing it but not sounding it with her right hand a minute more and this had roused me from my trance steerforth had left his seat and gone to her and had put his arm laughingly about her and had said come rosa for the future we will love each other very much and she had struck him and had thrown him off with the fury of a wild cat and had burst out of the room what's the matter with rosa said mrs steerforth coming in she has been an angel mother returned steerforth for a little while and has run into the opposite extreme since by way of compensation you should be careful not to irritate her james her temper has been soured remember and ought not to be tried 
Rosa did not come back, and no other mention was made of her, until I went with Steerforth into his room to say good-night. Then he laughed about her, and asked me if I had ever seen such a fierce little piece of incomprehensibility. I expressed as much of my astonishment as was then capable of expression, and asked if he could guess what it was that she had taken so much amiss, so suddenly. "'Oh, heaven knows,' said Steerforth. "'Anything you like, or nothing.' I told you she took everything, including herself, to a grindstone and sharpened it. She is an edge tool, and requires great care in dealing with. She is always dangerous. Good night. Good night, said I, my dear Steerforth. I shall be gone before you wake in the morning. Good night. He was unwilling to let me go, and stood holding me out with a hand on each of my shoulders, as he had done in my own room. Daisy, he said with a smile. For though that's not the name your godfathers and godmothers gave you, it's the name I like best to call you by. And I wish, I wish, I wish you could give it to me. Why, so I can, if I choose, said I. Daisy, if anything should ever separate us, you must think of me at my best, old boy. Come, let us make that bargain. Think of me at my best, if circumstances should ever part us. You have no best to me, Steerforth, said I. And no worst. You were always equally loved and cherished in my heart. So much compunction for having ever wronged him, even by a shapeless thought, did I feel within me, that the confession of having done so was rising to my lips. But for the reluctance I had to betray the confidence of Agnes, but for my uncertainty how to approach the subject with no risk of doing so, it would have reached him before he said, "'God bless you, Daisy, and good-night.' In my doubt it did not reach them, and we shook hands and we parted. I was up with a dull dawn, and, having dressed as quietly as I could, looked into his room. He was fast asleep, lying easily with his head upon his arm, as I had often seen him lie at school. The time came in its season, and that was very soon, when I almost wondered that nothing troubled his repose as I looked at him. But he slept, let me think of him so again, as I had often seen him sleep at school, and thus in this silent hour I left him. Nevermore, oh, God forgive you, Steerforth, to touch that passive hand in love and friendship. Never, never more. End of chapter 29I got down to Yarmouth in the evening, and went to the inn. I knew that Peggotty's spare room, my room, was likely to have occupation enough in a little while, if that great visitor, before whose presence all the living must give place, were not already in the house. So I betook myself to the inn, and dined there, and engaged my bed. It was ten o'clock when I went out. Many of the shops were shut, and the town was dull. When I came to Omer and Yoram's, I found the shutters up, but the shop door standing open. As I could obtain a perspective view of Mr. Omer inside, smoking his pipe by the parlour door, I entered and asked him how he was. "'Why, bless my life and soul,' said Mr. Omer, "'how do you find yourself? Take a seat. Smoke not disagreeable, I hope.' "'By no means,' said I. "'I like it, in somebody else's pipe.' "'What, not in your own, eh?' Mr. Omer returned, laughing. "'All the better, sir. Bad habit for a young man. Take a seat.' I'd smoke myself for the asthma. 
Mr. Omer had made room for me and placed a chair. He now sat down again, very much out of breath, gasping at his pipe as if it contained the supply of that necessary without which he must perish. "'I am sorry to have heard bad news of Mr. Barkis,' said I. Mr. Omer looked at me with a steady countenance and shook his head. "'Do you know how he is to-night?' I asked. "'The very question I should have put to you, sir,' returned Mr. Omer. "'But on account of delicacy. It's one of the drawbacks in our line of business. When a party's ill, we can't ask how the party is.' The difficulty had not occurred to me, though I had had my apprehensions too, when I went in, of hearing the old tune. On its being mentioned I recognised it, however, and said as much. "'Yes, yes, you understand,' said Mr. Omer, nodding his head. "'We durstn't do it. Bless you. It would be a shock that the generality of parties mightn't recover. To say, Omer and Yoram's compliments, and how do you find yourself this morning, or this afternoon, as it may be?' Mr. Omer and I nodded at each other, and Mr. Omer recruited his wind by the aid of his pipe. "'It's one of the things that cut the trade off from attentions they could often wish to show,' said Mr. Omer. "'Take myself. If I have known Barkis a year to move to as he went by, I have known him forty years. But I can't go and say, how is he?' I felt it was rather hard on Mr. Omer, and I told him so. "'I'm not more self-interested, I hope, than another man,' said Mr. Omer. "'Look at me. My wind may fail at any moment, and it ain't likely that, to my own knowledge, I'll be self-interested under such circumstances. I say it ain't likely in a man who knows his wind will go, when it does go, as if a pair of bellows was cut open, and that man a grandfather,' said Mr. Omer. I said, "'Not at all.' "'It ain't that I complain of my line of business,' said Mr. Omer. "'It ain't that.' Some good and some bad goes, no doubt, to all callings. What I wish is that parties was brought up stronger-minded. Mr. Omer, with a very complacent and amiable face, took several puffs in silence, and then said, resuming his first point, Accordingly we're obliged, in ascertaining how Barkis goes on, to limit ourselves to Emily. She knows what our real objects are, and she don't have any more alarms or suspicions about us than if we were so many lambs. Minnie and Yoram have just stepped down to the house. In fact, she's there after hours helping her aunt a bit, to ask her how he is to-night. And if you was pleased to wait till they come back, they'd give you full particulars. Will you take something? A glass of shrub and water now. I smoke on shrub and water myself, said Mr. Omer, taking up his glass, because it's considered softening to the passages, by which this troublesome breath of mine gets into action. "'But, Lord bless you,' said Mr. Omer huskily, "'it ain't the passages that's out of order. "'Give me breath enough,' said I to my daughter Minnie, "'and I'll find passages, my dear.' He really had no breath to spare, and it was very alarming to see him laugh. When he was again in a condition to be talked to, I thanked him for the proffered refreshment, which I declined, as I had just had dinner, and, observing that I would wait, since he was so good as to invite me, until his daughter and his son-in-law came back, I inquired how little Emily was. "'Well, sir,' said Mr. Omer, removing his pipe, that he might rub his chin, "'I'll tell you truly. I shall be glad when her marriage has taken place.' "'Why so?' I inquired. "Well." "'She's unsettled at present,' said Mr. Omer. "'It ain't that she's not as pretty as ever, for she's prettier. I do assure you she is prettier. It ain't that she don't work as well as ever, for she does. She was worth any six, and she is worth any six, but somehow she wants heart. 
"'If you understand,' said Mr. Omer, after rubbing his chin again, and smoking a little, "'what I mean in a general way by the expression. "'A long pull and a strong pull, and a pull altogether, my hearties. Hurrah! "'I should say to you that that was, in a general way, what I miss in Emily.' Mr. Omer's face and manner went for so much that I could conscientiously nod my head as divining his meaning. My quickness of apprehension seemed to please him, and he went on. "'Now, I consider this principally on account of her being in an unsettled state, you see. We have talked it over a good deal, her uncle and myself, and her sweetheart and myself, after business, and I consider it is principally on account of her being unsettled. You must always recollect of Emily,' said Mr. Omer, shaking his head gently, "'that she's a most extraordinary affectionate little thing.' the proverb says you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear well i don't know about that i rather think you may if you begin early in life she has made a home out of that boat sir that stone and marble couldn't beat i am sure she has said i to see the clinging of that pretty little thing to her uncle said mr omer to see the way she holds on to him tighter and tighter and closer and closer every day is to see a sight now you know there's a struggle going on when that's the case why should it be made a longer one than is needful i listened attentively to the good old fellow and acquiesced with all my heart in what he said therefore i mentioned to them said mr omer in a comfortable easy-going tone this i said now don't consider emily nailed down in point of time at all make it your own time her services have been more valuable than was supposed. Her learning has been quicker than was supposed. Omer and Yoram can run their pen through what remains, and she's free when you wish. If she likes to make any little arrangement afterwards, in the way of doing any little thing for us at home, very well. If she don't, very well still. We're no losers anyhow. For don't you see, said Mr. Omer, touching me with his pipe, it ain't likely that a man so short of breath as myself, and a grandfather too, would go and strain points with a little bit of a blue-eyed blossom like her. Not at all, I am certain, said I. Not at all, you are right, said Mr. Omer. Well, sir, her cousin, you know it's a cousin she's going to be married to. Oh, yes, I replied, I know him well. Of course you do, said Mr. Omer. Well, sir, her cousin being, as it appears, in good work, and well-to-do, thanked me in a very manly sort of manner for this, conducting himself altogether, I must say, in a way that gives me a high opinion of him, and went and took as comfortable a little house as you or I could wish to clap eyes on. That little house is now furnished, right through, as neat and complete as a doll's parlour, and but for Barkis's illness having taken this bad turn, poor fellow, they would have been man and wife, I dare say, by this time. As it is, there's a postponement. And Emily, Mr. Omer, I inquired, has she become more settled? Why, that, you know, he returned, rubbing his double chin again, can't naturally be expected. The prospect of the change and separation and all that is, as one may say, close to her and far away from her, both at once. Barkis's death needn't put it off much, but his lingering might. Anyway, it's an uncertain state of matters, you see. I see, said I. Consequently, pursued Mr. Omer, Emily's still a little down, and a little fluttered. Perhaps on the whole she's more so than she was. Every day she seems to get fonder and fonder of her uncle, and more loath to part from all of us. A kind word from me brings the tears into her eyes, and if you was to see her with my daughter Minnie's little girl, you'd never forget it. Bless my heart alive! 
said Mr. Omer, pondering, how she loves that child. Having so favourable an opportunity, it occurred to me to ask Mr. Omer, before our conversation should be interrupted by the return of his daughter and her husband, whether he knew anything of Martha. Ah, he rejoined, shaking his head and looking very much dejected. No good. A sad story, sir. However you come to know it. I never thought there was harm in the girl. I wouldn't wish to mention it before my daughter Minnie, for she'd take me up directly, but I never did. None of us ever did. Mr. Omer, on hearing his daughter's footstep before I heard it, touched me with his pipe and shut up one eye as a caution. She and her husband came in immediately afterwards. The report was that Mr. Barkis was as bad as bad could be, and that he was quite unconscious, and that Mr. Chillip had mournfully said in the kitchen on going away just now, that the College of Physicians and the College of Surgeons and Apothecaries Hall, if they were all called in together, couldn't help him. He was past both colleges, Mr. Chillip said, and the hall could only poison him. Hearing this, and learning that Mr. Peggotty was there, I determined to go to the house at once. I bade good-night to Mr. Omer and to Mr. and Mrs. Yoram, and directed my steps thither, with a solemn feeling which made Mr. Barkis quite a new and different creature. My low tap at the door was answered by Mr. Peggotty. He was not so much surprised to see me as I had expected. I remarked this in Peggotty too when she came down, and I have seen it since, and I think in the expectation of that dread surprise all other changes and surprises dwindled to nothing. I shook hands with Mr. Peggotty and passed into the kitchen, while he softly closed the door. Little Emily was sitting by the fire with her hands before her face. Ham was standing near her. We spoke in whispers, listening between whiles, for any sound in the room above. I had not thought of it on the occasion of my last visit, but how strange it was to me now to miss Mr. Barkis out of the kitchen. "'This is very kind of you, Master Davy,' said Mr. Peggotty. "'It's uncommon kind,' said Ham. "'Emily, my dear,' cried Mr. Peggotty, "'see here, here's Master Davy come. What, cheer up, pretty, not a word to Master Davy.' There was a trembling upon her, that I can see now. The coldness of her hand when I touched it I can feel yet. Its only sign of animation was to shrink from mine. And then she glided from the chair, and, creeping to the other side of her uncle, bowed herself, silently and trembling still, upon his breast. "'It's such a loving art,' said Mr. Peggotty, smoothing her rich hair with his great hard hand, "'that I can't bear the sorrow of this.' It's natural in young folk, Master Davy, when they're new to these here trials and timid like my little bird, it's natural. She clung the closer to him, but neither lifted up her face nor spoke a word. It's getting very late, my dear, said Mr. Peggotty, and here's Ham come for to take you home. There, go along with t'other loving heart. What, Emily? Eh, my pretty? The sound of her voice had not reached me, but he bent his head as if he listened to her, and then said, let you stay with your uncle? Why, you don't mean to ask me that. Stay with your uncle, Moppet. When your husband that'll be so soon is here for to take you home. Now a person wouldn't think of it, for to see this little thing alongside a rough-weather chap like me, said Mr. Peggotty, looking round at both of us with infinite pride. But the sea ain't more salt in it than she has fondness in her for her uncle. A foolish little Emily. Emily's in the right now, Master Davy, said Ham. Looky here. As Emily wishes of it, and as she's hurried and frightened like besides, I'll leave her till morning. Let me stay too. No, no, said Mr. Peggotty. 
you don't ought to a married man like you or what's as good as to take and hull away a day's work and you don't ought to watch and work both that won't do you go home and turn in you ain't afeard of emily not being took good care on i know ham yielded to this persuasion and took his hat to go even when he kissed her and i never saw him approach her but i felt that nature had given him the soul of a gentleman she seemed to cling closer to her uncle even to the avoidance of her chosen husband i shut the door after him so that it might cause no disturbance of the quiet that prevailed and when i turned back i found mr peggotty still talking to her now i'm going upstairs to tell your aunt as master davy's here and that'll cheer her up a bit he said sit ye down by the fire the while my dear and warm those mortal cold hands you don't need to be so fearsome and take on so much what you go along with me well come along with me come if her uncle was turned out of house and home and forced to lay down in a dyke master davy said mr peggotty with no less pride than before it's my belief she'd go along with him now but there'll be someone else soon someone else soon emily afterwards when i went upstairs as i passed the door of my little chamber which was dark i had the indistinct impression of her being within it cast down upon the floor but whether it was really she or whether it was a confusion of the shadows in the room i don't know now i had leisure to think before the kitchen fire of pretty little emily's dread of death which added to what mr omer had told me i took to be the cause of her being so unlike herself and i had leisure before peggotty came down even to think more leniently of the weakness of it as i sat counting the ticking of the clock and deepening my sense of the solemn hush around me peggotty took me in her arms and blessed and thanked me over and over again for being such a comfort to her that was what she said in her distress she then entreated me to come upstairs sobbing that mr barkis had always liked me and admired me that he had often talked of me before he fell into a stupor and that she believed in case of his coming to himself again he would brighten up at the sight of me if he could brighten up at any earthly thing the probability of his ever doing so appeared to me when i saw him to be very small he was lying with his head and shoulders out of bed in an uncomfortable attitude half resting on the box which had cost him so much pain and trouble i learned that when he was past creeping out of bed to open it and past assuring himself of its safety by means of the divining-rod i had seen him use he had required to have it placed on the chair at the bedside where he had ever since embraced it night and day his arm lay on it now time and the world were slipping from beneath him but the box was there and the last words he had uttered were in an explanatory tone oh close barkis my dear said peggotty almost cheerfully bending over him while her brother and i stood at the bed's foot here's my dear boy my dear boy master davy who brought us together barkis that you sent messages by you know won't you speak to master davy he was as mute and senseless as the box from which his form derived the only expression it had he's going out with the tide said mr peggotty to me behind his hand my eyes were dim and so were mr peggotty's but i repeated in a whisper with the tide people can't die along the coast said mr peggotty except when the tide's pretty nigh out they can't be born unless it's pretty nigh in not properly born till flood he's a-going out with the tide it's ebb at half after three slack water half an hour if he lives till it turns he'll hold his own till past the flood and go out with the next tide we remained there watching him a long time hours 
what mysterious influence my present had upon him in that state of his senses i shall not pretend to say but when at last he began to wander feebly it is certain he was muttering about driving me to school he's coming to himself said peggotty mr peggotty touched me and whispered with much awe and reverence they're both a-going out fast barkis my dear said peggotty c p barkis he said faintly no better woman anywhere look here's master davy said peggotty for he now opened his eyes i was on the point of asking him if he knew me when he tried to stretch out his arm and said to me distinctly with a pleasant smile barkis is willin and it being low water he went out with the tide End of chapter thirty Chapter thirty one of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty one. A greater loss. It was not difficult for me, on Peggotty's solicitation, to resolve to stay where I was until after the remains of the poor carrier should have made their last journey to Blunderstone she had long ago bought out of her own savings a little piece of ground in her old churchyard near the grave of her sweet little girl as she always called my mother and there they were laid to rest in keeping peggotty company and doing all i could for her little enough at the utmost i was as grateful i rejoiced to think as even now i could wish myself to have been but i am afraid i had a supreme satisfaction of a personal and professional nature in taking charge of mr barkis's will and expounding its contents i may claim the merit of having originated the suggestion that the will should be looked for in the box after some search it was found in the box at the bottom of a horse's nose-bag wherein besides hay there was discovered an old gold watch with chain and seals which mr barkis had worn on his wedding-day which had never been seen before or since a silver tobacco-stopper in the form of a leg an imitation lemon full of minute cups and saucers which i have some idea mr barkis must have purchased to present to me when i was a child and afterwards found himself unable to part with eighty-seven guineas and a half in guineas and half guineas two hundred and ten pounds in perfectly clean bank-notes certain receipts for bank of england stock an old horseshoe a bad shilling a piece of camphor and an oyster-shell from the circumstance of the latter article having been much polished and displaying prismatic colours on the inside i conclude that mr barkis had some general ideas about pearls which never resolved themselves into anything definite for years and years mr barkis had carried this box on all his journeys every day that it might the better escape notice he had invented a fiction that it belonged to mr blackboy and was to be left with barkis till called for a fable which he had elaborately written on the lid in characters now scarcely legible he had hoarded all these years i found to good purpose his property and money amounted to nearly three thousand pounds of this he bequeathed the interest of one thousand pounds to mr peggotty for his life and on his decease the principal to be equally divided between peggotty little emily and me or the survivor or survivors of us share and share alike all the rest he died possessed of he bequeathed to peggotty whom he left residuary legatee and sole executrix of that his last will and testament 
I felt myself quite a proctor when I read this document aloud with all possible ceremony, and set forth its provisions any number of times to those whom they concerned. I began to think that there was more in the commons than I had supposed. I examined the will with the deepest attention, pronounced it perfectly formal in all respects, made a pencil-mark or two in the margin, and thought it rather extraordinary that I knew so much. In this abstruse pursuit, in making an account for Peggotty of all the property into which she had come, in arranging all the affairs in an orderly manner, and in being her referee and adviser on every point, to our joint delight, I passed a week before the funeral. I did not see little Emily in that interval, but they told me she was to be quietly married in a fortnight. I did not attend the funeral in character, if I may venture to say so. I mean I was not dressed up in a black coat and a streamer to frighten the birds, but I walked over to Blunderstone early in the morning, and was in the churchyard when it came, attended only by Peggotty and her brother. The mad gentleman looked on out of my little window, Mr. Chillip's baby wagged its heavy head, and rolled its goggle eyes at the clergyman over its nurse's shoulder. Mr. Omer breathed short in the background, no one else was there, and it was very quiet. We walked about the churchyard for an hour after all was over, and pulled some young leaves from the tree above my mother's grave. A dread falls on me here, a cloud is lowering on the distant town, towards which I retraced my solitary steps. I fear to approach it. I cannot bear to think of what did come upon that memorable night, of what must come again if I go on. It is no worse because I write of it. It would be no better if I stopped my most unwilling hand. It is done. Nothing can undo it. Nothing can make it otherwise than it was. My old nurse was to go to London with me next day on the business of the will. Little Emily was passing that day at Mr. Omer's. We were all to meet in the old boat-house that night. Ham would bring Emily at the usual hour, I would walk back at my leisure, the brother and sister would return as they had come, and be expecting us when the day had closed in at the fireside. I parted from them at the wicked gate where visionary Strap had rested with Roderick Random's knapsack in the days of yore, and, instead of going straight back, walked a little distance on the road to Lowestoft. Then I turned and walked back towards Yarmouth. I stayed to dine at a decent ale-house, some mile or two from the ferry I had mentioned before, and thus the day wore away, and it was evening when I reached it. The rain was falling heavily by that time, and it was a wild night, but there was a moon behind the clouds, and it was not dark. I was soon within sight of Mr. Peggotty's house, and of the light within it shining through the window. A little floundering across the sand, which was heavy, brought me to the door, and I went in. It looked very comfortable indeed. Mr. Peggotty had smoked his evening pipe, and there were preparations for some supper by and by. The fire was bright, the ashes were thrown up, the locker was ready for little Emily in her old place. In her old place sat Peggotty once more, looking, but for her dress, as if she had never left it. She had fallen back already on the society of the work-box with St. Paul's upon the lid, the yard-measure in the cottage, and the bit of wax-candle, and there they all were, just as if they had never been disturbed. Mrs. Gummidge appeared to be fretting a little in her old corner, and consequently looked quite natural too. "'You're first in the lot, Master Davy,' said Mr. Peggotty, with a happy face. "'Don't keep in that coat, sir, if it's wet.' "'Thank you, Mr. Peggotty,' said I, giving him my outer coat to hang up. "'It's quite dry.' "'So tis,' said Mr. Peggotty, feeling my shoulders, "'as a chip. See ye down, sir. It ain't a no use saying welcome to you, but you're welcome, kind and hearty.' 
thank you mr peggotty i am sure of that well peggotty said i giving her a kiss and how are you old woman ha <laughs> ha laughed mr peggotty sitting down beside us and rubbing his hands in his sense of relief from recent trouble and in the genuine heartiness of his nature there's not a woman in the world sir as i tell her that need to feel more easy in her mind than her she's done her duty by the departed and the departed knowed it and the departed done what was right by her as she done what was right by the departed and 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 it's all right mrs gummidge groaned cheer up my pretty mother said mr peggotty but he shook his head aside at us evidently sensible of the tendency of the late occurrences to recall the memory of the old one don't be down cheer up for your own self only a little bit and see if a good deal more don't come natural not to me dan'l returned mrs gummidge nothing's natural to me but to be lone and lorn no no said mr peggotty soothing her sorrows yes yes dan'l said mrs gummidge i ain't a person to live with them as has had money left things go contrary with me i had better be a riddance why how should i ever spend it without you said mr peggotty with an air of serious remonstrance what are you a-talking on don't i want you more now than i ever did i know there was never wanted before cried mrs gummidge with a pitiable whimper and now i'm told so how could i expect to be wanted being so lone and lorn and so contrary mr peggotty seemed very much shocked at himself for having made a speech capable of this unfeeling construction but was prevented from replying by peggotty's pulling his sleeve and shaking her head after looking at mrs gummidge for some moments in sore distress of mind he glanced at the dutch clock rose snuffed the candle and put it in the window there said mr peggotty cheerily there we are mrs gummidge mrs gummidge slightly groaned light it up according to custom you're a wonder what's that for sir well tis for our little emily you see the path ain't over light or cheerful after dark and when i'm here at the hour and she's a-coming home i puts a light in the winder that you see said mr peggotty bending over me with great glee meets two objects she says says emily there's home she says and likewise says emily my uncle's there for if i ain't there i never have no light showed you're a baby said peggotty very fond of him for it if she thought so well returned mr peggotty standing with his legs pretty wide apart and rubbing his hands up and down them in his comfortable satisfaction as he looked alternately at us and at the fire i don't know but i am not you see to look at not exactly observed peggotty no laughed mr peggotty not to look at but to to consider on you know i don't care bless you now i tell you when i go a-looking and a-looking about that there pretty house of our emily's i'm i'm gormed said mr peggotty with sudden emphasis there i can't say more if i don't feel as if the littlest of things was her almost i takes em up and i puts em down and i touches of em as delicate as if they was our emily so tis with her little bonnets and that i couldn't see one on em rough used on purpose not for the whole world there's a babby for you in the form of a grey sea porcupine said mr peggotty relieving his earnestness with a roar of laughter peggotty and i both laughed but not so loud 
"'It's my opinion, you see,' said Mr. Peggotty, with a delighted face, after some further rubbing of his legs, "'as this is along o' my having played with her so much, and may believe as we was Turks and French and Sharks, and every variety of foreigners, bless ye, yes, and lions and whales, and I don't know what all, when she warn't no higher than my knee. And I got into the way on it, you know. Why, this here candle now,' said Mr. Peggotty, gleefully holding out his hand towards it, i know very well that after she's married and gone i shall put that candle there just the same as now i know very well that when i'm here a nights and where else should i live bless your hearts whatever fortune i come into and she ain't here or i ain't there i shall put the candle in the winder and sit afore the fire pretending i'm expecting of her like i'm a-doing now there's a babby for you said mr peggotty with another roar in the form of a sea porcupine why at the present minute when i see the candle sparkle up i says to myself she's a looking at it emily's a comin there's a babby for you in the form of a sea porcupine right for all that said mr peggotty stopping in his roar and smiting his hands together for here she is it was only ham the night should have turned more wet since i came in for he had a large sou'wester hat on slouched over his face where's emily said mr peggotty Ham made a motion with his head, as if she were outside. Mr. Peggotty took the light from the window, trimmed it, put it on the table, and was busily stirring the fire, when Ham, who had not moved, said, "'Master Davy, will you come out a minute and see what Emily and me has got to show you?' We went out. As I passed him at the door, I saw, to my astonishment and fright, that he was deathly pale. He pushed me hastily into the open air and closed the door upon us. Only upon us, too ham what's the matter oh master davy oh for his broken heart how dreadfully he wept i was paralysed by the sight of such grief i don't know what i thought or what i dreaded i could only look at him ham poor good fellow for heaven's sake tell me what's the matter my love master davy the pride and hope of my heart her that i'd have died for that i would die for now she's gone gone Emily's run away. Oh, Master Davy, think how she's run away. When I pray my good and gracious God to kill her, her that is so dear above all things, sooner than let her come to ruin and disgrace. The face he turned up to the troubled sky, the quivering of his clasped hands, the agony of his figure remain associated with that lonely waste in my remembrance to this hour. It is always night there, and he is the only object in the scene. "'You're a scholar,' he said hurriedly, "'and know what's right and best. "'What am I to say indoors? "'How am I ever to break it to him, Master Davy?' I saw the door move and instinctively tried to hold the latch on the outside to gain a moment's time. It was too late. Mr. Peggotty thrust forth his face, and never could I forget the change that came upon it when he saw us, if I were to live five hundred years.' I remember a great wail and cry, and the women hanging about him, and we all standing in the room, I with a paper in my hand, which Ham had given me, Mr. Peggotty with his vest torn open, his hair wild, his face and lips quite white, and blood trickling down his bosom, it had sprung from his mouth, I think, looking fixedly at me. "'Read it, sir,' he said in a low, shivering voice. "'Slow, please. I don't know as I can understand.' In the midst of the silence of death, I read thus from a blotted letter. When you, who love me so much better than I ever deserved, even when my mind was innocent, see this, 
I shall be far away.' "'I shall be far away,' he repeated slowly. "'Stop, Emily, far away. "'Well.' "'When I leave my dear home, my dear home, oh, my dear home, in the morning,' the letter bore date on the previous night, "'it will be never to come back, unless he brings me back a lady. "'This will be found at night, many hours after, instead of me. "'Oh, if you only knew how my heart is torn!' if even you that i have wronged so much that never can forgive me could only know what i suffer i am too wicked to write about myself oh take comfort in thinking that i am so bad oh for mercy's sake tell uncle that i never loved him half so dear as now oh don't remember how affectionate and kind you have all been to me don't remember we were ever to be married but try to think as if i died when i was little and was buried somewhere pray heaven that i am going away from have compassion upon my uncle tell him that i never loved him half so dear be his comfort love some good girl that will be what i was once to uncle and be true to you and worthy of you and know no shame but me god bless all i'll pray for all often on my knees if he don't bring me back a lady and i don't pray for myself i'll pray for all my parting love to uncle my last tears my last thanks for uncle that was all he stood long after i had ceased to read still looking at me at length i ventured to take his hand and to entreat him as well as i could to endeavour to get some command of himself he replied i thank ye sir i thank ye without moving ham spoke to him mr peggotty was so far sensible of his affliction that he wrung his hand but otherwise he remained in the same state and no one dared to disturb him slowly at last he moved his eyes from my face as if he were waking from a vision and cast them around the room then he said in a low voice who's the man i want to know his name ham glanced at me and suddenly i felt a shock that struck me back there's a man suspected said mr peggotty who is it master davy implored ham go out a bit and let me tell him what i must you do an ought to hear it sir I felt the shock again. I sank down in a chair and tried to utter some reply, but my tongue was fettered and my sight was weak. "'I want to know his name,' I heard said once more. "'For some time past,' Ham faltered, "'there's been a servant about here, at odd times. There's been a gentleman too. Both of them belong to one another.' Mr. Peggotty stood fixed as before, but now looking at him. "'The servant,' pursued Ham, was seen along with our poor girl last night. He's been in hiding about here this week or over. He was thought to have gone, but he was hiding. Don't stay, Master Davy, don't. I felt Peggotty's arm around my neck, but I could not have moved if the house had been about to fall upon me. A strange shay and horses was outside town this morning, on the Norwich Road, almost afore day broke, Ham went on. The servant went to it and came from it and went to it again. When he went to it again, Emily was nigh him. T'other was inside. He's the man. For the Lord's love, said Mr. Peggotty, falling back and putting out his hand as if to keep off what he dreaded. Don't tell me his name, Steerforth. Master Davy, exclaimed Ham in a broken voice, it ain't no fault of yourn, and I am far from laying of it to you. But his name is Steerforth, and he's a damned villain. Mr. Peggotty uttered no cry, and shed no tear, and moved no more, until he seemed to wake again all at once, and pulled down his rough coat from its peg in a corner. "'Bear a hand with this. I'm struck of a heap, and I can't do it,' 
he said impatiently. Bear a hand and help me. Well, when somebody had done so, now give me that there hat. Ham asked him whether he was going. I'm a-going to seat my niece. I'm a-going to seat my Emily. I'm a-going first to stave that there boat and sink it where I would a drowned at him, as I'm a living soul if I had had one thought of what was in him, as he sat afore me, he said wildly, holding out his clenched right hand. As he sat afore me, face to face, strike me down dead, but I'd have drowned him and thought it right. I'm a-going to seat my niece. Where? cried Ham, interposing himself before the door. Anywhere. I'm a-going to seek my niece through the world. I'm a-going to find my poor niece in her shame and bring her back. No one stop me. I tell you, I'm a-going to seek my niece. No, no, cried Mrs. Gummidge, coming between them in a fit of crying. No, no, Dan'l, not as you are now. Seek her in a little while, my lone lorn Dan'l, and that'll be but right, but not as you are now. Seek ye down and give me your forgiveness for having ever been a worry to you. Dan'l, what of my contraries ever been to this? And let us speak a word about them times when she was first an orphan, and when Ham was too, and when I was a poor widow woman and you took me in. It'll soften your poor heart, Dan'l, laying her head upon his shoulder. And you'll bear your sorrow better, for you know the promise, Dan'l. As you have done it unto one of the least of these, you have done it unto me. And that can never fail under this roof that's been our shelter for so many, many year. He was quite passive now, and when I heard him crying, the impulse that had been upon me to go down upon my knees, and ask their pardon for the desolation I had caused, and curse Steerforth, yielded to a better feeling. My overcharged heart found the same relief, and I cried too. End of chapter 31「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. » «And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. » «Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.»